At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Brandon Howard Thurston, and we are usually joined by my co-host, Christopher Mukigan Harrington from St. Paul, Minnesota. He's not able to join us today. He's had a family emergency that came up. We're going to do a show anyway, and uh, we have a number of options that I had to consider about what we're going to do this weekend. I decided I'm not going to subject the listeners to a three-hour introspective monologue into the mind of Brandon Howard Thurston in the form of a Brandon Howard Thurston solo show. That was Mookie's suggestion. But we do have one of the most prolific writers in wrestling media, uh, my friend and, and maybe yours, uh, Corey Graves, Twitter dunk victim himself, <laughs> Mr. David Bixenspan. Bix, thank you for joining us. Maybe yours? My friend, your friend and maybe theirs? Maybe theirs. Maybe. Okay. Did he really suggest that you do a three-hour solo show? Uh, sort of. Like, he suggested, I oh, you might want to try this solo show. I'm making it sound worse than it is. Okay. Well, thank you for picking me above Lavi. Maybe I'll call Lavi at Lavi after this, and we'll talk Ring of Honor. Who knows? We've got uh, a number of things to talk about. I think we're going to talk about how wrestling journalism actually doesn't exist. This podcast right now that you're listening to is a figment of your imagination, maybe. Uh, we're going to talk about Ronda Rousey's potential effect on W Business, which I wrote an article on earlier uh, last week. We may even talk about UFC and WWE's Google search trends, what it all means, WWE's ad rates, why they're... TV rights are so much lower than other sports. We may talk about Jim Cornette uh, making some claims about NXT's profitability 
New Japan went to Australia. Ed Nordholm talked about how Impact Talent actually isn't late on pay. Oh, of course not. And Ring of Honor has broken its attendance record already. Those are our topics we will probably get to. If we don't get to any of them, I will edit out my hyping of them in post-production. We have Bix here. I'm holding you to that. We, we have Bix here. We have myself here. Um, am I a wrestling journalist? I reflect on that sometimes. Are you a wrestling journalist, Bix? What do you think? I didn't used to think so. These days I think I am. Yeah. I would say you, you more so than I am. You are. Because you have like a more regular spot, like you you do. It's a weekly column, right, for Deadspin? Uh, twice a week. It was twice it was week. weekly until October, and then it became twice a week. So, what happened recently? Let's let's explain for people who may not be acquainted. Booker T was removed or left the Raw broadcast team, and in his place is now Jonathan Coachman. And uh, Booker T on February third went on his own podcast and claimed that Corey Graves had gotten him fired from Raw, and then a couple days later. Corey Graves went on Twitter and tweeted this Sun Tzu quote from The Art of War, and he said, yes, this is what you think it is, sort of alluding to the fact that, uh, you know, he's kind of, kind of trying to play into people's talk about how Corey Graves did have something to do with Booker being fired or leaving the broadcast team, and he was in some way seeming to affirm that on February 5th. Then on February 10th, Booker and Corey Graves appeared together on Booker's podcast, and they celebrated how they worked the entire wrestling world the dirt sheets and so forth. And then uh, a few days later, on February 15th, Booker T went on Cheap Heat with Sam Roberts, and they had a talk where for a few minutes they talked about wrestling media, and Booker T did things like he claimed that Dave Meltzer reported that the Corey Graves and Booker T story was a shoot, which I don't believe is true. He didn't. Yeah. And I don't know that anybody else confirmed that it was a shoot, did they? Not off the top of my head. Um... I mean, look, at the beginning, it certainly seemed a little more real just because he did it on his – Brooker talked about it on his radio show, which is not a wrestling show. Right. Like at that moment, I could totally see why you would think it was real. Because you're in that environment. This is not a, a kayfabe environment when you're on your own personal podcast. That's usually a place where you – with many exceptions where you don't work the fans or you don't play into a storyline. Well, that was – no, that hurt. wasn't even the podcast. That was his like broadcast non-wrestling radio show. Oh, that's right, because he does like a Houston uh, radio yeah. show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's not just a wrestling show. And I mean, as he said now, he was just looking to fill time when they had uh, like 15 minutes left at the end of the show and was winging it. Mm-hmm. But okay, look, I think when that starts, you can kind of think, okay, that might be real because because of how he's doing it and Booker's an outspoken guy and so on and so forth. But then it just kind of kept going and. I mean, once Graves went along with it, I think it was fairly clear that it wasn't real. Yeah, and I don't think, I don't think anyone reported that it was. I, you know, people reported what they said, right? But that's not the same thing. So while Booker was on cheap heat with Sam Roberts, Sam Roberts is sort of going over the situation. He makes a passing reference to referring to I think Dave Meltzer as a wrestling journalist, and Booker cuts him off and corrects him and says, "No, they're all dirt sheet writers." Yes. He said, quote, unquote, wrestling journalist, I believe. Right. And then Booker says, yeah, Dirt Sheet Writer. And Sam Roberts kind of agrees with them or affirms what he's saying, saying, you know, did you ever think that Dirt Sheet Writing would be, you know, would come to these legitimate news sources like Sports Illustrated and like Forbes? And uh, there's so many things wrong with that. It's like we hear somebody have a conversation that's just so uh, not connected with the way that things really are. They're making a lot of presumptions about the story that are incorrect to get to this even more incorrect conclusion. Because, like, I think there's the co-opted media, like ESPN, like 
maybe things that, that we're seeing from Sports Illustrated, from Justin Brasso, things that are very questionable, like the, the Matt Hardy story and his reporting recently of the Dolph Ziggler $1.5 million deal and whether or not that's really true. Um, but there's, there's a lot of co-opted media in ESPN. These, uh, we see it's Hall of Fame announcement season here coming up on WrestleMania where we see every Monday morning we're recording on Sunday. We'll probably see another one by tomorrow morning where they're probably going to introduce so-and-so into the Hall of Fame. And it'll be, how did they get that scoop, whether it's Rolling Stone or Forbes or breaks the, the news story. So what do you think, Bix, about are we dirt sheet writers? Is Dave Meltzer a dirt sheet writer? I know Dave says he takes the, the dirt sheet name as like a, a compliment because there's something in the past where like, oh, yeah, they, they call them dirt sheets because they didn't really want them to get into what, what the real story was. But I think the way that people use it, they use it in a derogatory way. Right. Well, the origin of the name, if I remember how Dave has explained it correctly, was that the music like trade newsletters that Zane Bresloff subscribed to were called Dirt Sheets. And there was actually, I believe, one that was called The Dirt Sheet. I forget which came first, the nickname or the one actually being called The Dirt Sheet. And then I think from him, that name spread to wrestling. And for Zane Bresloff, I mean, I know the name has come up here occasionally, but he, you know, he was local promoter for WWF, then WCW, best known for doing the local promotional work at WrestleMania 3 because of his name coming up with being the initial person from who Dave found the uh, actual WrestleMania 3 attendance. 78,000, yeah. Yes, yeah, 78,000 change. Um, I, you know, among fans and stuff, I never found it to be derogatory, like, during the, the like, newsletters era, like, in the 90s and stuff. I never thought it was really derogatory. Um you know, when Hogan would say rag sheet and stuff, that was a little more derogatory because it wasn't like the loving nickname. But I, I don't think it was I don't think it was derogatory until it had this weird comeback in the last five years or so where all of a sudden you had kind of like your Reddit squirrel squared circle breed of fans and people who are newer to the wrestling business like Ruby Sky, who's the example I always remember because of her picking up an issue of inside wrestling on the newsstand and doing a video where she was pointing out like things that she saw that were wrong and calling it a dirt sheet, which was just adorable and the greatest thing ever. Um, that's, I mean, that's been derogatory, but they, they apply it to like everyone yeah. in a way that's kind of weird. Like, you know, it's now it's universal enough that I, that I don't mind it as much anymore unless it's being used derogatorily, but it's, I, I I don't know when exactly the change happened, but that happens there. And then now, I mean, I don't know. I almost feel like Dave shouldn't take it in as a compliment. But I, mean, I don't know if I ever heard the whole thing about the name Dirt Sheet being specifically to down – just to downplay them. Um, but that goes to something that you've been talking about this week that you think a lot of this stuff – it's less from a place of ignorance, at least at its root, maybe within WWE, and more that it's to uh, insult the wrestling media and take away their credibility for when they are reporting legitimate stories that don't reflect well on WWE. Yeah, I think that's what happens, and I think that's how they want it to work. I don't know. Like, I I have some wrestler friends, and I will just hear them really casually refer to wrestling news as, "Oh yeah, I saw that on the dirt sheets," like in, in the most seemingly innocuous way. And I think it the use of, the, of that term like, being so ubiquitous, it sort of sets up a predisposition for you to think, oh, yeah, whatever you read in there, you, you can't really take that seriously. And to some extent, I see where they're coming from, and I see where a lot of the criticism 
of, of wrestling media comes from because it is a really weird world. And there, there are fans and, and readers and viewers who are disproportionately engaged in wrestling. And I think just the existence of this podcast is one piece of evidence of that. I'm like, my God, we have a sustainable podcast here just for you know a couple of people to talk about wrestling business every week. But there are real important news stories. I mean, like this tweet I made the other day, like there's real important news stories around like W's drug policy, W's politics, the way they use language and sort of water down the product and make it feel more corporate and plastic, W's history of hazing and, and so on and so forth. So that there's real news stories here, but you want to like, you know, it sounds like the president, you don't want to really deal with actual criticism. Right. And you know, one of the things I don't think you actually got up to it yet, but that's in the notes, and that was a big topic of conversation with the whole Booker and Corey Graves thing, is that I believe both of them, when they went on Booker's podcast together, were like, well, no one reached out to us for comment. Because, okay. because we know how, how easy it is to uh, to get in touch with <laughs> W Talent, and we know how – but I'm being sarcastic, obviously. Like, we've both had experience with reaching out to, to WB Public Relations and uh, sometimes they're helpful, but sometimes like they don't even give you a reply. And I think a lot of that is for for one thing, they, they obviously give preferential treatment to the bigger media outlets, and to to some some degree that's understandable. But I think WB has a mentality of like they're victims, you know, and it's sort of like, yes. sort of similar to the present. Like they're they're victims of this scrutiny that they shouldn't have to be faced with. And because the pro wrestling industry comes from a legacy of people saying, you know, of, of it kind of being based on a work. So they want to protect the business for one thing. They want they have a history of wanting to protect kayfabe and to keep certain things secret when storylines were more protected. So I think we still have this legacy of, oh, protect the business. We, you know, they, they don't deserve to know the real truth or something like that. Yes, I think that's some of it. But there, I mean, there's other things to that, too. Like, um, for example, I apologize if I'm st- stumbling for a second. I was trying to find something that'll play into this that I'll, I have on I'll, edit, I'll, I'll edit out all of our stumbling. <laughs> be edited out in post. Uh, so where were we? Yeah, so with their PR people, I mean, look, you're never – if you reach out to WWE PR, you're never going to get a statement attributed to a specific talent unless it's fairly nuclear like the Booker – not Booker, uh, Booker T on the mind, like the Roman Reigns thing several weeks back with the steroid dealer. Yeah. Um, if you try to reach out to them individually, it really depends on who they are. If you can actually find contact info for them, et cetera, if they're confident in giving a statement without going to WWE first, et cetera. And usually that's not going to happen. Um, I mean, Sean Ross Epp, a Fightful, mentioned that he did try to reach out to them. He never reported that it was all a shoot, but he sent an email to the most recent contact that he had for Booker T. And Corey Grace doesn't have any, you know, any direct contact information listed publicly. So what do you do? Right. I mean, it's not like it's going to be easy to get his phone number. I mean, if you really want to ask around, maybe someone would give it to you. But eventually you get to one of his friends. They're probably also going to know it's a work and just tell you to wait it out. Yeah. Or just not, not respond to your message. Right. It's just so dumb, and, and they're not necessarily allowed anyway. Right. Some people can get away with it. And Go ahead. And it's my understanding, like, if a wrestler is requested an interview, they can't just accept whatever, whatever interview they want, right? I mean, like, for example, some 10 years ago, probably longer than that, uh, Meltzer used to be able to get WWE wrestlers on Wrestling Observer Live, and that's obviously a thing of the past. WWE, it, it seems to me, I don't know this officially, but it seems to me WWE has to approve any of your media appearances. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird because, like, I don't think they necessarily ever needed to approve 
Art of Wrestling appearances until it became kind of an unofficial enemy of the state with the with the Dr. Heyman lawsuit. Right. I almost want to say like before that, it, he uh, we're talking about Cole Cabana's podcast. He was yeah. I think before just before that, he was no longer allowed to have WWE people on. I'm not sure. Right. I do remember him mentioning it somewhere now that you can yeah. say it, but it wasn't necessarily that. Um, you know, oh, there was the one off where I was able to get CM Punk to just do my early podcast without having to clear it with anyone. Um, but that was that's while he was working for WWE? Yeah, that it's, okay. yeah, but that's few and far between is the point. And look, here's the thing. In terms of if you wanted to try to get a WWE interview from them, there is, and I mentioned this in my Deadspin piece this week, there is a legitimate reason for why wrestling-centric outlets would not be prioritized, and that is that the bulk of the media time that the wrestlers are doing is local media to promote live events. Like there is a legitimate reason in there why wrestling specific outlets would be de-emphasized, but they're not getting them anyway. You have to have some kind of mainstream hook usually for them to give you access to talent. Right. And I think, um, I think WD's position too is like all these wrestling news sites are going to cover it regardless. So giving them access right. doesn't give that give WWE itself any extra attention that it wasn't going to get anyway. But it but it might if they grant an, an interview to a local news outlet or mainstream. Right. Sean's been waving the flag on that a lot lately. He even commented on the Deadspin piece with that that he feels they're fairly aware that the wrestling sites are going to cover it anyway. So why take the risk? Um, but as he said, you know, in that thread he did, you know, in December about. Yeah, and we'll get to this more, I'm sure, in a few minutes, about how there's clearly this vibe, and you know, Corey Graves outright said it in his attempt to dunk on me on Twitter, that they think that people in wrestling media just want to work for them. It's just so – A, it's stupid. There are times, though, where wrestling media people for wrestling sites will somehow get an interview, and it never really goes badly. Like when I did the Wrestling Inc. interview with Natalia because the PR people for Frisky's – had her for a SummerSlam weekend thing for a few years ago. And when it's the sponsors, they have a little more leeway. And it went fine. I don't believe there was even a WWE PR person on the phone. But nothing comes of it. And, you know, you can get access to the talent because they're pretty indiscriminating about who they'll let go to the uh, 2K video game parties. So you can, you know, get a quick interview, you know, kind of junket style in person with talent there and... I feel like I'm forgetting one, but that's about it. And, you know, there's the Triple H conference call, too, which is, you know, every quarter approximately. Now it's a little more often as they increase the frequency of the NXT takeovers. It's every takeover. Right. But even then, I mean, there are people that they don't put on. They stopped putting me on. Um, yeah. I had, well, OK, I didn't really care that much. It passed a certain point. But there was one where I had a specific question about developmental I wanted to ask. So I reached out. and I was like, hey. There is a specific thing I want to ask, you know, that would be relevant to the call because they try to keep it limited to uh, NXT and developmental related questions. Um, I know when Dave Meltzer first got asked on them, he asked a non-developmental question, but he also told me that they didn't give him those ground rules. He asked the Rousey question well before Um, Rousey was signed, I I recall. But not – but this isn't what I'm talking about, though. This is fairly – early on in like i believe the first call he did but regardless i mean that's really it in terms of 
what you would consider wrestling media and the access they can get directly through WWE. Now they can talk to the PR people and the PR people can be helpful sometimes. Mm-hmm. I found it's better to text with them if you can because you're going to get a little more of a real dialogue. But you know, I mean, first they're still PR people and even WWE too. I'm sure you've seen this. They have this very weird habit of they'll just say off the record as to, as if that makes something off the record, not understanding that it's actually an agreement to be off the record. Or they'll call you. Or they'll call you and they'll just say, yeah, look, off the record, we deny it. They want – and this is probably practiced, I would think, throughout public relations. Though, if, if they want to say something to you off the record, they'll give you a call. They'll be like, what's your phone number so I can give you a call? And if they're willing to say something to you on the record, they will give it to you in email. Right. Oh, but with WWE, though – they don't usually do the proper thing, which makes me wonder if it's systemic and who's telling them to do it this way, especially when sometimes they, you know, they'll hire experienced PR people who should know better, where they'll just say, and often in text, hey, off the record, dot, dot, dot. They won't call or even just text saying first off the record question mark. No, which even though that's the right way to do it, you make sure that you have an agreement to be off the record. But every, pretty much everything that I've ever been told by a WWE PR person that they thought was off the record. If I wanted to burn them would be the wrong word. But if I wanted to say what they say, I'd be well within my rights. Right. You know, ethically as a journalist, some people wouldn't like it and they'd cut me off. I'm sure, which wouldn't be the first time either, but I, I absolutely could. And I wouldn't, it, you know, among other journalists, it wouldn't be criticized because I never agreed to it. And I have the text. I wouldn't do it because I don't want to burn them. Right. Like, like off the record is more like there's no legal requirement for a media person to not report something that was said off the record. Although I guess it's like an understanding that, yeah, you're probably going to damage the relationship, though, if you do. Right. It's an ethical thing, but it's an agreement. That's the thing that people don't always understand. Off the record, all this stuff is an agreement. You can't just say off the record and make it off the record. Unless you have an established relationship with that person that everything you say is off the record unless you say otherwise and you're just making sure to emphasize it. And we're kind of getting into a different different issue. Though. Yes, but like yes. When, but... when I interact with wrestlers, not that many of them are saying anything that's pertinent to wrestling news that you know, the mainstream fans care about. But like I wouldn't take somebody's quote without letting somebody know, oh, I'm working on this article about such and such so that there's an understanding of like, oh, he's doing media here. Yeah. Um, but – I do want to bring it back around to as far as like the whole trying to kind of get at the credibility thing too because I mean there's part of me that feels like on one hand a lot of the time it's only the wrestling media that's getting at certain things because they're the only ones who really are are following it close enough to kind of understand where everything with the drug policy and all that right. goes and I'm sure we're going to be talking about that a little right. bit in, too. In, in mainstream reporting I find there's almost always a lack of background knowledge to really get at the full story. Right, right. Although that's changing, at least wrestling-wise, because they have more. There are more people on mainstream sites that are on a wrestling beat in some form. So it's like that is one way, but it's also like, and that's you know changing is. I mean, this is not tuning my own horn. This is more because I happen to be lucky enough to be at a place where if I get sued, they'll cover my costs. <laughs> um, wrestling media does not have a great history of diving into certain issues and maybe but i think that's part of it is not having enough legal or financial support in terms of like you look back i don't think the wrestling media did as good a job as they could have on like the ring boy scandal and stuff for example you know what i mean 
You're, you're talking about like the early '90s. Yeah, I, I think wrestling media before the internet and after the internet are, are two very, very different worlds. Sure. So, so I guess you're you're talking about newsletters at that time. Yeah, but I mean, in general, too, I think just because of resources and stuff like that, there was ne- most wrestling sites other than other than drug testing, I guess, are not necessarily going to go deep deep on the type of stories that WWE would actually be worried about until recently. Yeah, like what kind of stories? Yeah, like, you know, like sexual harassment. Dig, digging back up Vince McMahon's 2006 allegation. Oh, oh, yeah. That one. That, yeah. Who did that again? Well, you were an article on it recently. Oh, um, right, right. Okay. Anyway, we're getting deep. The, let's, let's try to tie a bow on this. I guess go back to uh, Graves and Booker. And so we, I, we didn't really even get to what Sam Roberts said on his follow-up this week. Um, I actually have it in my Deadspin article. If I can, here's what Sam said. After noting though that he is a Wrestling Observer subscriber, uh, there is an issue though with this idea that just with the idea in general of wrestling journalism, I still think that's up for pretty critical debate. As you know, Wade Keller would probably describe himself as a wrestling journalist, and I love Wade Keller. I'm on his podcast all the time. He's one of my favorite people to t- talk to about wrestling. But in my personal opinion. I think that talking about wrestling and wrestling websites and dirt sheets and things like that, perfectly legitimate form of entertainment, perfectly legitimate way to make a living, if that's what you you do, perfectly legitimate websites. I don't have a problem with dirt sheets existing. The issue is with the phrase journalist and the concept of journalism. Journalists go to college for journalism. There is a code that they abide by when they do interviews and they take notes and everything needs to be fact-checked. There are editors. There is a responsibility that goes with being a journalist that does not allow you to report on rumors and assume truths based on your expertise. And later he says, you're finding the truth with evidence that being a reliable source, a source, an eyewitness, something like that, or it's an opinion piece. And then he also kind of reiterated the thing about how he was, quote, perplexed about Sports Illustrated and Forbes running, quote, dirt sheet news, which is not necessarily news, he said. It's rumors. It's I heard it from this guy who heard it from that guy. My sources are anonymous. If I'm wrong, that's just because things change. And he said that working at WWE on the pregame shows, he's seen a lot of things that kind of go against the plans change narrative. I will say this, that there's a lot of aggregation in wrestling news. Like most of the wrestling articles that you'll probably find on most wrestling news websites are like what I would call aggregated news, which is which is like they're taking news – from other outlets and mostly non-wrestling outlets and putting it in some sort of wrestling context or delivering it to the wrestling fans, the wrestling readers who want to read that news. Yes. Um, or, they're, or they're referencing it from an actual newsbreaker like The Observer or PW Insider, which are probably the two most frequent ones, or whoever else happens to break the news. And I think there's – so is aggregation journalism? Well, it should be held, held to some standards, certainly. And it, is it, but is it digging into the actual story? Is it making a, you know, is it making progress and in, in learning what the truth is and delivering a story to an audience? Not really, but it is getting it to the wrestling fans at least. But besides that, I do think there is there's a lot of room for more actual journalistic like reporting, more actually like trying to get quotes from people. And at least what I'm trying to do, uh, I write for Wrestling Inc. is try to do a lot of business analysis and actually get to what the facts are. Because I, I guess I've, I felt the reason why I started writing is because 
you hear a lot of arguments or a lot of people having conversations about wrestling and, and who really did what and what really is going to happen. What really is the consequence if WWE does X, Y, and Z? And like we all talk as if we know what, what the facts are. And But if, if you dig into it, you know, the facts are actually quite a bit more complicated than maybe the way we talk about it a lot of times. So at least in, in, in my work, the, the kind of work that I do most frequently, I'm trying to get to the bottom of what is is the truth like what are the actual consequences of for example WWE signing ronda rousey and why might it be favorable for WWE to do so right well i mean as far as aggregation and this is something sean's talked about a bit too it's a reality if you're a wrestling website you need to do it you try to have as much original content originally reported content etc as you can but you're not going to have an audience if you don't also aggregate what's being broken elsewhere that's just a reality i mean look mainstream news sources aggregate too they just right. do it differently and, and, and from, i think from a practical standpoint i would say like if you're going to tell everybody if, if you're going to expect that like your reader is only going to read your website for news you have to tell stories that you don't always break yourself yes exactly and mainstream news does it too just more eloquently like i think and i think this is changing i think fightfuls does probably the best job is that the aggregation sites just were never good with context and they would, you know, throwing too much stuff together in one post, it would just get kind of jumbled. Like, it needs it to be done, and Fightful is one of the places doing this in a way that's a little more, I don't know, palatable? Yes. Oh, so as far, though, as what uh, Sam was saying about, well, first of all, this is something, and this is not to insult anyone who writes there. The Forbes that covers wrestling generally is not Forbes as we know it. This is not the Forbes that broke the Peter Thiel, the Hogan story. They have a thing called Forbes Contributor Network that is separate to provide additional web content, including their sports money blog, and that includes people that they pay, I presume, much less than the actual you know main staff and freelancers. And it's separate, and it's not in the magazine or anything like that. And some people do good work there. I'm not saying they don't. But it's it's... It, that's more of a, thing, a side effect of what Forbes is doing. And then as far as SI, we could have a whole conversation about the way things have been going with Justin Barrasso lately. Mm-hmm. Um, that does, isn't really germane to this. But it's a lot of what he's putting out there is usually stuff he's reporting himself. So I don't really understand the, the invocation of SI there. There are some questions around his reporting uh, in SI. And I think there are plenty of valid criticisms to put towards like the Forbes blog articles. They have uh, at least a couple writers who do some business stuff occasionally. And sometimes they make good points. And, but then at other times I, I read it and I'm like, well, you know, they'll, they'll do something about TV ratings, for example. And I'll be like, well, you're not accounting for the fact that the third hour of raw is lower rated than the other two almost always. So it, again, it's just like a lack of background knowledge and so uh, like the point sam roberts is trying to make is like oh i can't believe that you know this mainstream outlet and that mainstream outlet are are reporting this news and it's not as good but like that those are the the outlets that are that are not doing it as well as some other outlets that are actually just wrestling media outlets that are the dirt sheets you know right and it should be noted too that sam on his show said that he wanted wrestling reporters to reach out for him and arrange to go on his podcast. Seems to be sincere about that. Um, you'll probably be hearing more about that this week. That's all I'll say for now. Like, he, I don't think he's malicious, though. I think we should stress that, whereas I do think that Booker T and Corey Graves are. I, would you agree with that? Yeah. I, I mean, I've heard Sam Roberts on Wade Keller's podcast, and there's a there's a more reasonable side to him than, than the side that perhaps we hear when he talks to certain W superstars or when he's on a, a W pre, pre-show. 
I would say that's his biggest fault in interviews is that he's gonna glad hand a little too much to the subject, like just kind of laughing and be like, yeah, when Booker says that Meltzer reported that the whole thing was a shoot. He's gonna empathize. He's gonna be a good friend. Yeah, which I mean, I, look, if you're doing an interview that is being recorded for distribution in audio, it's a tough line to tell. You know what I mean? And, you know, there's also stuff you could you, – you might even do that more in a print interview and then, you know, the world just doesn't see it. So it's like – it's right. not so it's not a huge fault on his part. Yeah. You know, so it's like I, I, I don't fault him too much for kind of doing that because when you're an interviewer, especially in his spot. But, I mean, then, you know, look, he admits he's not a journalist, but it's also – like it's going to affect how he's going to conduct an interview too that he's also working for WWE. The, the ultimate point that I would make is, yeah, wrestling media can absolutely do a better job. And we can talk as, as well about like what Dave's done over the years and, and the way The Observer hasn't really been traditional journalistic reporting. So I, I think absolutely wrestling media in a lot of ways could do a better job. But I don't think we should discount the fact that there are really good writers out there who are you know taking a really serious approach to wrestling writing and to doing journalism or to doing research or whatever it is. And I, I guess it, it, it kind of makes me feel like, you know, you're, you know, I think we work really hard at what we do and I think yes. we do a good job at what we do and we're not out there trying to do tabloid news reporting and it makes us feel like you're not, you're not really seeing the whole story here, you know, and I understand wrestling fans that there's a demand out there that allows the sort of wrestling media that exists to exist because I, I've, I've told this story before, but I, I remember going to a concert not that long ago and uh, the person who was performing in the concert was clearly drunk on stage and then about three quarters of the way through the performance just abruptly walked off stage. And I would say this person is about at least as famous as, you know, a top-level indie wrestler. And uh, I looked on the internet in the days that followed and it was nothing. There was no story anywhere about it. And, uh, if that was a wrestling person, my God, then, you know, within hours, it would have been all over Twitter. And then within a few hours later, there would have been articles all over wrestling media. So I totally understand that wrestling fans have a disproportionate rabidness for wrestling news and for maybe even personal details of wrestlers' lives that they don't really need to know about. But I think people need to read the writers and follow and listen to, to the people in wrestling media who actually do do a good job. Right. And I mean, this is changing, obviously, and I clearly would be for the current generation although that that's also then different because of the way social media is and stuff but you know i agree with dave Meltzer's for like his reason why there's always been this huge thirst among the bigger wrestling fans for newsletters and stuff is that they didn't have anything they could just easily get they're used to looking for stuff they're used right. to paying for information and paying to find new stuff it's like the, the internet was always going to be big for rest. I mean, really, like, you think about the early days of the web, like late 90s. I got to think that at least early on, other than porn, there probably wasn't a lot more con like content about a certain given topic than pro wrestling. Yeah, I, I, I think I remember that being like one of the talking points in like the late 90s because I'm, you know, where people were getting internet in their homes for the first time and, and there was talk like, well, you know 90% of what's on the internet is porn, right? And, and maybe the other 10% was wrestling. But yeah. Yeah, look at when, when we were growing up in the 90s. I think we're the same age. Uh, there really wasn't, and maybe it was different. I think you, you grew up in the New York area, so maybe you had more access to a wider variety of media. But like, there wasn't any way, without, before the internet came into people's homes, there wasn't any way to find out any, any sort of real news about what, what's really happening you know, in this uh, wrestling product that I'm watching other than what's on TV. All we had were like magazines and whatever was on Vince's TV or WCW's TV. 
Right. Either you had nothing or you had a local you know, wrestling newspaper column that was good or you had a wrestling radio show, in some cases both. Mm-hmm. But that's not most markets. Right. And, you know, like for if me, you I really, guess it was – I live in Buffalo and we could just barely pick up the radio from Toronto. So I got like 590 AM from Toronto, which was broadcast into the law in like 1999. And that right. was like – and that's where you know, Dave starts being a guest on that show at about the same time. And that's where I got introduced to Dave and the Observer and so forth. Right. I'm not into this stuff nearly as early if I don't have John Arezzi's radio show here in New York, you know, in the early 90s and him having Dave and Wade on all the time and people like that. You know, it, it, it affects how you consume it. But I got to think, too, that the – you know, New York's a big population base. But I, I got to think – and I remember when I first kind of befriended John a few years ago, like I kind of told him, like, you don't, I don't think you realize just like how many people you probably got into the newsletters and stuff. Yeah. So – you know, if you were somewhere like that, or you know, some sometimes it was just being in the right wrestling hotbed. If you're in Charleston, South Carolina, then you had access to Mike Mooneyham's newspaper column, which was. I don't think there's any disputing that it was easily the best wrestling newspaper column, pretty much ever. Mm-hmm. You know, especially in the '90s when he was actually breaking news and he'd get major interviews with Linda McMahon and people like that. You know, it was tremendous. You know, and then later when he did more history and stuff, it was also great. Um, so it, it depended on where you were. But yeah, so um, to close this out, because we need to move on now, I think, let me just read you something. This is what I was looking for earlier. There's more of this in this case, but I figured I'd just read this little snippet here. Um, so in 1993, uh, WWF and the McMahons sued Phil Mushnick in the New York Post, as well as Geraldo Rivera and his various production companies yeah. over their coverage of the scandals. Mm-hmm. Um let me read the snippet for you here. Is this from uh, Mr. Jerry McDivitt? Yes, it is. I'm not sure exactly what um, what this pleading document is because it's kind of out of it's the file I have is out of order because of how it was stored. But is this, is this a bowling story? No. Okay. <laughs> oh, the Frank DeFord. The Frank DeFord story? No, no. This does not involve Vince McMahon stealing someone's shoes. Okay. Uh, on January fifth, nineteen ninety two. Uh, Graham and Schultz, superstar Graham and David Schultz, then appeared on a radio show called Pro Wrestling Spotlight, moderated by one John Arezzi. Arezzi has no known job and was a <laughs> member of the so-called, quote, wrestling media, a group of people relied upon Mushnick in a form of, quote, lowest common denominator journalism. These members of the, quote, wrestling media generally have no real assets, no regular job, and literally spend their lives searching for, for and printing any rumor, gossip, or dirt about wrestling they can find. Throughout the scandal, Mushnick would wait until something was said by the, quote, wrestling media, and then he would reprint it. This is 1993. Yes. Wow. And just real quick, the, the bowling story, there's – that got brought up in a lawsuit somewhere. No, it you wasn't mean, a lawsuit. It was, uh, it was Vince's was congressional that, interview. That, that, is that like the 2009 testimony to the subcongressional committee? Well, it was released in 09. I think it was late 07. Okay. Um. And then it turned out that it was basically true, and I actually have it in my Frank DeFord article on Deadspin. Uh, Vince, possibly in league with Pat Patterson, were at the birthday party for John Filippelli, who had worked at NBC Sports in time and, and look, worked in, for NBC Sports and other companies, but at the time worked for WWF. Uh, Frank DeFord's also there with his wife because he's good friends with John Filippelli. And at some point, Vince, possibly with Pat, st- steals one one shoe of Frank's and one of his wife's. 
So they ha- had to go home wearing one shoe and one bowling shoe each. Mm-hmm. Um, months later, <laughs> Vince sends a Christmas card. This is, this is after the National, which is where what he was taking issue with, the National running Dave Meltzer's coverage and criticism of the Gulf War angle. Ceased to exist. You know, the, by no right should Vince be upset about this anymore. Vince sends a Christmas card asking if they found the shoes. And Meltzer is referred to as a gossip columnist. I think. Oh, some, yes, 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 yes. Because yeah. I think there's some statement in there where either Vince or McDivitt uh, interrupts and says that we have a term for people like this in our industry, and they're called the dirt sheets. He's referring yes. to the, the Observer and or the torch. Yeah. Um, what else? Oh, there's also one time where in, like, Discovery requests and stuff, reporters is putting quotes when referring to Dave Meltzer of Mushnick and John Razzie. So that's how they really feel. Any final thoughts on this before we move on? I hope not. Okay. So Ronda Rousey tonight is going to sign with WB at Elimination Chamber. They're going to have her contract signing as part of the pay-per-view. So I did an article on Wrestling Inc. this week just sort of talking about what the potential effects to business Ronda Rousey signing may have. On its face, it might look like, well, okay, she's just a bigger star, but it's really going to benefit them, or at least it, they, I think they hope it's going to benefit them in their TV rights negotiations, which are, which are underway right now. So it's not just like Ronda Rousey's there to sell more network subscriptions or tickets to whatever extent she actually appears on events, but I think there's a real value in saying, hey, we have a mainstream sports star here who has uh, a lot of sponsorship relationships already, and so you should give us an even better TV deal. So, like, why this is important is because WWE's TV revenue is their biggest single segment of revenue. This is their biggest business within the company. And their biggest three TV deals are currently being renegotiated. And so those three TV deals are with the U.S. and currently held by NBC Universal, and the U.K. currently held by Sky and India. And those are going to expire around the end of 2019. And the negotiation period, or at least the, the announcement period that WWE has told us they're going to expect to make the, the announcement on the U.S. deal is coming up in May. So it's from May to September, they say. You can expect them to make an announcement on, on their U.S. TV deal, whether that's ultimately with NBC Universal. It's been rumored they're talking to Fox as well. We'll see what happens. But you think about it like they did this thing in January. They brought out Ronda Rousey. They made sure she got lots of means, mainstream press while they did it. They didn't just bring her out on a Raw or they didn't bring her out quietly. They brought her out on a, on a pretty big stage, WWE's second biggest pay-per-view of the year, Royal Rumble. They're following that up. The next pay-per-view tonight, Elimination Chamber, they're going to announce her signing. And then they're probably going to follow it up with a match involving Ronda Rousey at WrestleMania. So that's April. Then we get to May, and that sort of pours it right into the time that they expect to finalize a deal. So I think that could, ha- could have a positive effect, or at least I'm sure WWE's hoping it will, because we saw uh, in the conference call for the last quarterly report uh, where usually just Vince and mostly George Berrios is the CFO do most of the talking uh, and Paul Levesque was uh, prompted by Vince McMahon to give an explanation on, on Ronda Rousey and he made it clear that she's going to be with WWE for a, for it's a multi-year deal he said the contract was not complete at that time he said but that it's going to be a multi-year deal which is, is it got to be a signal to TV partners to say hey look into the next term into, the, into that next round of contracts that starts in like 2020 we're going to have her we're going to have one of the biggest sports stars i, I guess in the world he says a couple of years ago before she lost twice in UFC any picks any thoughts on how Ronda Rousey will do for WWE <laughs> i think the key with Rousey 
is that she brings her own audience. And I think people miss this, especially if they don't really keep up with MMA and MMA business. Ronda Rousey, if she brings more eyeballs to WWE, she's not bringing the UFC audience. And I don't think there should be any expectation that she would. The people who bought Ronda Rousey pay-per-views, especially the ones that put it up way over the uh, the average for UFC, they didn't buy any other UFC pay-per-views. They didn't buy the Conor McGregor pay-per-views even. Even though they would both do in the million range, those audiences did not really overlap. So if Ronda Rousey's fan base has stuck with her you know, in this you know, over-a-year break since her last UFC fight where she got shellacked in a minute, that could be huge, especially in terms of being, bringing paying fans over to the network. So when it comes to TV, I don't know because it's not like she was ever used that way by UFC. But I think that's got to bring numbers up to him, especially if it's just the regular TV show. So I think she's a big asset. And I think because they're apparently negotiating with Fox, including to possibly bring Raw to the broadcast Fox network, and they – have had UFC for the last several years, even if, you know, I, whether or not they're preparing for UFC to be gone, I don't know. But they're going to have the most intimate knowledge of the effect that Rousey can have. I got to think that more than anything else, this is good for negotiating with Fox, especially since and I feel like overall this story has been underplayed. If they are genuinely negotiating with Fox to do this and put Raw on Big Fox, that's a game changer because – Maybe it's people not keeping up with TV as much as they could in general. I mean, Fox is a major network now. This is not, you know, I mean, this is not 15 years ago. There are four big networks now, and for a lot of that time, the time that Fox has been a major, major network, NBC has been going down. So you could really say Big Three. That's completely different from any other weekly show WWE has ever had, ever. It's like a Saturday night main event every week, I guess. But although in prime the, time the on Monday, is, is way more fragmented now. But yeah, it's fragmented, but you still get a different audience. And I mean, their base is gonna the base is bigger. That's just gonna watch that thing to see what you know, see oh, what's on channel. You know, here channel five in prime time. Yeah, and you know, there are still plenty of people who don't have cable. You know, there's the cord cutting thing too. I would be very curious to see where that goes. I. I don't know. I mean, I don't see this being a thing where WWE aren't fit. They certainly have the potential to do a good bit better than they do now, especially with the show being not three hours. Yeah, and well, you know, I'll get back to Rousey in a sec. I'm curious what you think about that. I mean, the the big deal with going to Fox is that if they they cut it to two hours, how do they really do that? Because they would have to restructure all their international deals because they have obviously they have a TV deal in the U.S., but they also have a number of other deals throughout the world that they would have to restructure. And I guess the question is, is if, it, if it's Fox that takes them on, is Fox going to give them enough money to make up for the money that they would lose from having to restructure all those international deals? And it's, it's really hard for me to get a, wrap my head around what, what kind of number that really means. It'd be many, many millions of dollars. That's all I can say. And whether or not Fox would be willing to give, give them that money, I don't know. Um, I know, I well, think, I think they could also just do a stay. dark hour, though. 
They could also just do a dark hour that's only for international or it's like a ma- a longer match with some video packages mixed in. Like I think that's doable. I don't think that's that. If, if I'm one of their international Ridiculous. partners, though, I don't like that idea because that that's like all right, one third of the value is going to be diminished. But are they? It's not like there are they aren't already doing that. The third the third hour is already kind of a throwaway. So, so they, much they of the time prioritized it, but there, there is, it's one thing to be like, yeah, the third hour is not as big of a deal anymore. And there's another thing to be like, yeah, this is, this is an extra hour. We don't even give it to our domestic audience. I guess, but I think there are ways to do, or, you know, they could make it a, do a third network hour, do a network hour at seven, especially because if you're Fox, you don't, or even a 10, I mean, 10, I don't think would work. I think you'd have to do it in the first hour, but you know, it's not like you're going against Fox. Fox only runs eight to ten. But I, I think like the point you make about how this is, you know, having Rousey maybe gives them a better ability to get a good offer from Fox. Yeah. Um, even if you know, even if they don't really want to go to Fox, or even if they're not going to go to Fox, it's still if they can get a really great offer from Fox, it's still an offer they can say, "Hey, look, NBC Universal, they're offering us this much. How much are you going to offer us?" Right. It can be big leverage, although. I don't know. If I think the money's the same, and I, if they can navigate the third hour thing, I think they're better off going to Fox. With Because it's a bigger platform. If they're really going to put them on the broadcast yeah. channel Fox. Sure. Yeah, no. If it was just for FS1 and maybe FX or FXX, no. Mm-hmm. Because Fox, if, if I'm WWE, I think Fox, okay, being on Fox Broadcast Network, that means I've got a bigger reach now than the USA Network is giving me because the USA Network is in what 99 million homes maybe and and Fox is in however many homes there are TVs in because it's right. available over the air so yeah it would be a, a benefit to WB in terms of trying to sell network subscriptions just because he, he, theoretically they should have a bigger reach which means a, a better ability to get TV viewership which means a better ability to be able to sell your, your network subscriptions or your live event tickets or your various other products Right. I think there's enough data on the way Rousey's audience kind of worked that if they're still there, I really do think that having her locked in is good for the TV deals. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, but we don't know how much she shed. We really don't. Um, and, and if I'm a I, TV partner, like I want to know how many how many dates are you getting her for and how many how many dates like TV dates is she going to appear for? Because that's all that matters to me if I'm a TV partner. Is if you got Rousey, OK, but how much am I going to have her on our TV? Right, right. And especially with her becoming kind of hermity, you know, you, you don't know how much is she really going to do, in ter- especially with media. That's that I think is then the, the biggest question mark, though. Just how much does she hate doing media now? Is she going to grant you an interview for Deadspin? That's what I want to know. <laughs> but seriously, though, like, is she going to go on talk shows or is she content to just not do anything yeah. unless it's, you know, privately talking to her pet journalist, Ramona Shelburne? At ESPN, who's the only person she'll talk to? Um, and I think that brings. I don't an- know. Yeah, I, I think that brings us to another point. Like, is this is what I think? You know, there were arguments with Jonathan Coachman at the time. Is like, even though he's he's their broadcaster now, right? That is, did, how yeah. badly did these two losses hurt her? And not just the two losses, but how she handled the two losses. Did, does that? Does that make her star not so bright? Does it make people not feel like they want to, you know, connect with her as a star so much? Any thoughts on that? Um, I'm not sure. It's hard to tell because the first loss, it seemed like, really didn't do as much damage as people expected. To her audience, it didn't. Mm-hmm. 
She didn't do any any PR for that second, you know, for that second loss or the ter- what turned out to be the second loss, and it still outdid the first loss, which I think was her pay per view peak on pay per view, and it was on a Friday night, not a Saturday, because they d- didn't want it to be on New Year's Eve. Uh, like she's, you know, at least a year ago, she still had that star power. Um, bringing it to WWE, and again, you know that it's kind of gimmicking up the credentials and stuff. I don't know. You know, especially when you consider like she's really unless he's just cutting loose and saying crazy things, she's not that engaging in interview. And she's kind of stiff especially you know, you know so far in WWE and around that. And you know, when she tries to act I've heard I don't know. Good. I've heard the acting is not good. No. Um uh, probably puts her on par for a lot of W superstars, but uh but the, I, I, I mean, the, the sign pointing, like as much as people joked about it, that she looked so stiff out there just doing that was a pretty bad sign, mm-hmm. pun not intended. I, I think, yeah, she has the potential to bring in a lot of fans. And I think that's especially interesting around like the network because you, you'll probably get a lot of free subs um, that you wouldn't get otherwise. Whether or not those will ever convert to paid subs is another question. Well, you know what, though? I don't know if they're... If these are people that are just not normally WWE fans, are they going to be as interested in figuring out and doing the free sub? I mean, I guess it depends on what the offer is at the moment and how it's set up. Yeah, and but what, I could, and how how uh, interesting or how good is the hype around whatever the match is? Right, but I could see the Rousey fan base just paying. Well, if they never subscribed before, they're going to be free. How does it work these days? Like when you go to the sign-up page, are you it, getting a free month no matter what? I think so. I believe so. Okay. If, you, if you've never if you've never created an account, you get three days free. Is my understanding. Um, but like as far as uh, her, the reactions to her, the way the total fan base is going to treat her, um, I I don't know. You're going to have maybe some new fans who who really like her and who are drawn to the product because she's there at least to, at least to check it out. But you're probably going to have a lot of WWE fans who, yeah, understand that she's a star, but don't necessarily want to embrace her. So I think, like, if they have, if they have visions of like making her a face long time, long term, especially with the way that WWE books, I don't think that's going to work out. And I think she's somebody who, you know, sometimes like you, they, they, you know, in wrestling you see people debut and then they turn heel right away. Uh, and I usually think that's not a good idea. But uh, in, in this case, maybe that that is a good idea for her to turn heel. Maybe not by WrestleMania, but shortly after, because I think the bloom will probably be off the rose in terms of like she's she's new and fresh and she's Ronda Rousey. If not by tonight, I think she's going to end up getting booed. Yeah, I think t- really just to see how the reaction to her is at tonight and at WrestleMania, I think is going to hopefully dictate some stuff going forward. But like you know what? I mean, with her and kind of the stuff, some of the stuff we've seen from her. How is she going to react to if she gets booed? Yeah. In UFC, she relished it at times, but that was when she was the you know indestructible winning machine, right. not you know this person who turned out to have huge flaws and then turned out to be like. I'm not a big stick and ball sports guy, but like, it seems like like when people bring it up, like it's she does seem to be like legitimately one of the worst losers in the history of major sports at least publicly yeah and she took those losses really hard but we've seen like 
MMA fighters who are really, really great MMA fighters and were really good at MMA promos, like Ken Shamrock comes to mind. Then they make this transition to pro wrestling and they're like, you know, one of the stiffest promos ever. So I, I think there's a big difference between the mindset that somebody gets in for an MMA interview yeah. that's got some attention towards hyping the fight. And then when people get to pro wrestling, they, there's a different mentality that comes in for whatever reason. And they get more into like a performance mode and more like an acting mode. And most people just aren't naturally great actors. And, and then we see, you know, Ken Shamrock promos. My hope is that she'll be looser tonight, that Rumble was a byproduct of her being happy to be there, and that the second time, it's going to be less of that, and there will be less nerves. I'm sure that'll be there to some degree. The question is how much and how much of an improvement, I think, that actually allows her to make. Yeah. And just one other point about this is that, you know, probably WWE is playing this up to partners in a positive manner. Hey, we got this new star give us a better deal. And again, I don't, I don't have a, a quote from that on anybody, but it just makes sense. Um, but they also have this, uh, you know, line that they, they go to where Vince McMahon has said, not, not just on the most recent conference call, but in conference calls prior that, you know, it's a big wheel that keeps on turning. And it's, and he did say in this most recent conference call, uh, no one individual, this is when Rousey was being brought up. He just wanted to make sure everybody remembered that. Quote, no one individual is like the panacea of our talent. Um, so they want to have it both ways, obviously. And I, th- I think it's just, you know, they're sort of talking out both sides of their mouth. While we have Ronda Rousey, that's a big deal for our business. And well, well, wait, wait, wait. No, no one talent is, uh, is uh, going to affect our business in a, in a really big way. Because they don't want to have the risk, you know, perceptible to their investors of like, oh, if John Cena goes down or if so-and-so superstar goes down, that's going to affect our business. They don't want people to get to that place. And I think we see that manifest in their creative in a lot of ways where it seems like, you know, I don't know, do they want individual stars to get over? I wonder sometimes. This always comes up. Do they want individual stars to get over? I'm not sure anymore. (laughs) Uh, I I, I saw something from uh, Wade, Wade Barrett uh, this past week where he said that he feels like they, you know, they don't do the best job with people, but they want, you know, they have six or eight spots, top spots in the company, and they decide ahead of time, okay, we want this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, and so on in those top spots. And then they do everything they can to get those people over. At least this at least fits the, the Roman Reigns story, I think, that they really want these guys to get over. And then, you know, whether or not they get over or not, and whether or not fans cheer other people is not really a concern because they've already decided that they, they want these people to be their top priority. And they don't really budge, regardless of what the fans, how the fans really react, despite you know been seeing things like we have a, a you know a test group every night because we just listen to the crowd. Right, I think they want people to be stars within the framework that they want them to be stars in. Yeah. I think I, that's. I, the best I would way think a, a lot of it too is like you have to affirm Vince's genius. Like Vince has to know ahead of time who's going to be the star, and Vince is not a genius if the crowd creates their own star. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Now, well, I guess we should consider, though, that Dolph Ziggler may be the panacea, though, not they're paying him $1.5 million downside. Yes. <laughs> should we talk about that for a second? Go for it. it I believe the, the report was, this is a Justin Brassel report on Sports Illustrated from a couple weeks ago. I'm just doing this from memory, that uh, Dolph Ziggler is reportedly 
has signed a new deal for $1.5 million over two years. And my understanding was that was $1.5 million each year for two years. That's what it's – well, sounded like – well, didn't he also say that Ziggler had been getting a million-dollar downside before that? I, I think it was like one sentence, and it was not much more than what I just said. But you, you might be right, though. But that was the impression I – and I think it seemed like most people got. Um, here's the thing. I, as long as they're giving Triple H a million-dollar downside as talent, even if he is only wrestling once or twice a year, I don't see them giving anyone else more other than you know your Brock Lesnar-type per-date special attraction deals. Yeah. Undertaker um, has a, a million yeah. dollar or two million dollar downside, something like that. Right, and that they kind of consider it as WrestleMania payoff. Like, I, I don't see it going beyond that. Now, look, there was that story about Del Rio on his last contract. Um, and that was disputed, I believe, too. Yeah, and I don't know if there was ever really any kind of determination as to who was actually believed on that. But Del Rio was a guy who was actually making huge money outside the company. And was coming off like a gigantic star outside the company. This wasn't someone who hadn't left yet. Right. You know what I mean? It's not like there was a a push for them to want Ziggler more because he had left and done well. He's still there. Yeah. And you know, been floundering for a while. So I don't buy it. Um, Barrasso in general has been weird lately, yeah. as we alluded to earlier. I don't want to go into this too much, but you know, there was this. And then it's kind of to tie into what we were talking about earlier. Really, I think the weirdest thing he's done, not even this, would be the thing after the Rich Swann arrest, where he said that Ryan Satin had been getting a lot of criticism on Twitter for reporting on the arrest and running the mugshot. And Ryan was like, what? It's a public uh, record. Well, no, no, no. It wasn't just that. Ryan said he hadn't been getting any criticism. He was like, I saw this and then I vanity searched to make sure and I didn't see anything. So I have no clue what he's talking about. No one was criticizing anyone for reporting on that, that I saw anywhere. It's like, it's, I mean, that's something that's reported on everywhere all the time, not just wrestling media. So what is he doing? And it's just been this weird shift the last few months in his reporting that seems suddenly like, I don't know if you'd call that pro-WWE. I don't know if you call the Ziggler thing pro-WWE, although you can make an argument that it's trying to make WWE seem more magnanimous. Right. But and, and like, it just seems like he's lost the plot. I don't know what it is. Yeah, and I, I think like this goes back to what we were talking about. Like the, the people who are doing good work, they don't want to work for WWE because we know when we point out these things that are critical to WWE, they don't like that, and that doesn't score us any points to like getting considered for a job with WWE but these other I don't know maybe places like Sports Illustrated where they're doing some really questionable reporting maybe there's, there's people there who are more interested in working for WWE I don't know but. right and we also know that like the one person was a wrestling reporter that they hired you know in recent times which was Kevin Ack kind of burned out on creative in a couple of years and that was it Court Bauer worked for WB first before he started. Like he, this is Court Bauer was an MLW before he did the podcast or anything. Yeah, he was yeah. best known as former the promoter Court Bauer. Yeah, I just want I wanted to get that out there just because the whole it it does kind of tie into the various topics we've been talking about. So I just was curious what you thought of that. So here we have some Google Trends. You want to go through that Google Trends for UFC and WWE? Uh, let's see. If sure. You scroll down here. You can see the multicolored maps. Ooh. So earlier this week, I went through Google Trends as I often do, and uh, I looked at 
so Google Trends, if you don't know, goes all the way back to 2004. It goes 2004 to the present. You can break it down by various uh, ways to slice time in terms of what you want to look at a couple years or an individual year or a week or a day, whatever. So I went and looked at each year individually and just compared WWE searches, which I'll get into what that means, WWE searches to UFC searches. Basically, it, it gives you a bucket of, so in, in the case of WWE, I type in WWE and it, and it sort of autofills and says, oh, here, WWE, sports entertainment company. You click on it. So it's looking for searches for WWE, like that string itself, and then also a bucket of related searches and similar for UFC. So you look at the whole world and it'll tell you like, okay, you're comparing UFC to WWE and it'll tell you by each country using a, a colored map, like which country there are more UFC searches in or which country there are uh, more WWE searches in. So just a couple interesting things out of this I found was that, so in, in, in this uh, map we have WB is red and UFC is blue. So Canada is WB colored in 2004 all the way up until 2008 where all of a sudden it turns blue and then stays blue, that is the UFC color, it stays with UFC uh, all the way through the present with the exception of 2014 where it, there were more searches in Canada for WWE than UFC. But uh, that's interesting, and that seems like maybe we could give credit for to um, George St. Pierre for making that shift. Does that sound about right? Oh, clearly, because 2008 is, I believe, when his long title reign starts. Mm-hmm. Right, so, and then, you know, 2013 is when he vacates the title and goes on his hiatus. So that seems pretty cut and dry. And uh, the other interesting points I found here were Ireland is red all the way until 2015 for obvious. I wonder why. Conor McGregor reasons. <laughs> and Australia is WB red all the way until 2013, it looks like. I thought it was a late. No, all the way until 2016. And then it's been UFC colored blue for the last two years. So I know, I know there's a big uh, UFC show in Australia that had Rousey on it, right? Around that time in two, 2015 or 16? Because it was the first UFC card in whichever state that was. Because they had they had taken a long time to legalize MMA in a cage. Okay. And this was like a stadium show, as I recall. Yes, it was at Etihad uh, Stadium. Right. So... That was interesting. I mean, like when when I look at Google Trends, I need to remind people that Google, you know, Google searches don't necessarily entail things about business. They don't necessarily entail uh, popularity. They they just show which topic is being searched for more, whatever, right. whatever that entails. Well, I think a lot of it is searching for news. Yeah, I think a lot of it is that you put in UFC or WWE, and you look at the Google News results, and then you see what the top stories are. I think a lot of it is WWE is on TV in prime time every week, and UFC UFC's on TV most weekends, right? Like there's a UFC fight most weekends, is that right? You cover UFC more than I do. Yes, yes. But it's but there's a great fluctuation in UFC cards in terms of like importance, right, and prestige. Whereas WWE, you've got Raw every week, and it's you know obviously there are bigger Raws than others. Raw 25 being an obvious exception, but like for the most part, Raws are as important from one week to the next. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's that. Just WB being, I think, just WB being on primetime TV on a weekly basis, 
and having more viewership as well. It's, you got people probably on the couch, especially in, in the era of smartphones, just people on the couch, you know, pulling out their phone while Raw or SmackDown is on TV and, and searching for it. So yeah. five hours of TV helps. But on the other hand, that, that makes these uh, transitions from WTUFC in the case of countries like Ireland, Australia, and Canada uh, even more impressive. Yes. Um, the one that jumps out to me in a weird way is Brazil, um, because that's almost always UFC except for, what is that, 08? Yeah, 2008, it turned WWE for whatever reason. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that other than that 08 was one of the big international pushes, wasn't it, for WWE? Could be. That, that is an interesting outlier to me, though, because for obvious reasons, that's going to be heavily UFC, but... I don't think there's anything specific that year, though, right? Other than that was just one of those times where they were concentrating a lot on expanding internationally, and they were not too far removed from the idea of starting up the international territories, or I think Brazil might have been one of them. Maybe. Or it's like, in UFC, was there just like a lack of a Brazilian star that year? I mean, they already have Anderson. I mean, he he's more of a breakout star after that, but I don't know. I, uh, let's see. I mean, in a way, Vitor Belfort was kind of a bigger star for a long time, but he's not really in the UFC picture then. Maybe that's part of it, but he's still not. When does he actually show up in UFC? I think he does show up in UFC in 09. I'd have to chart out exactly when he left and came back, though. I don't think that's all of it, though. This is, it, this is a little bit of a confusing one to me, because the rest I think you can kind of figure out. We do have Russia. I've been, I've been wondering about this. Like, why why don't uh, why isn't WWE interested in running in Russia more? Hmm. They have some friends. We have some friends in Russia, don't they? Um. Okay. Like... Uh, okay. Well, let me let me bring something up about this. Have you gotten the same DMs and stuff that I have, no. noting <laughs> that? Okay. That that I believe they stopped referring to Rusev as Russian, and the the whole like here's the great leader Vladimir Putin thing like a week before Trump announced his candidacy. Oh, really? It, if it's not a week before, it was like oddly close. Hmm. Oh, and, at the time, like, so Lana is really of Russian descent, right? But Rusev is really of Bulgarian descent. So I think around Lana the, time, the person or Lana the character? Well, the, the person. She's, she's, she was really born in, in Russia or something, right? Hold on. CJ. I'll Google it. <laughs> Lana Wrestling. She's not listed as CJ Perry on Wikipedia, actually. It's Lana Wrestling, and then the article begins. Catherine and Joy Perry. Born in Florida. Uh, what are you talking about? She she spent some time in Russia, though. She, she spent several years uh, of childhood in the Latvian SSR. Her father worked as a missionary. Okay. And then she they remained in Latvia after it restored its independence from the Soviet Union. Okay, so she did spend part of her childhood in the Soviet Union. Which is not exactly the same thing, um, but she was they were pushed as, as a Russia, Russian. Though the character has always been Russian. Yeah, um, Rusev was initially presented as being Russian and then changed to his legitimate Bulgarian. Yeah. I think um, it was kind of acknowledged that he was Bulgarian, but it was like you know close enough. He's Russian. And then it just became outright, here's the Bulgarian brute. Right. And, and, and they went through an angle around the same time where Lana and Rusev had broken up. So that maybe he was, you know, on his own, so he was just going to hold up the Bulgarian flag now instead of the Russian flag. Oh, God. That is still one of the weirdest things they've ever done. 
that breakup. Yes. And then Lana going with Dolph Ziggler, of all people, with the the jean jacket and the the whole thing was just so weird. Absolutely. So, but that, that my question is like, why? So there's how many million people? 144 million people in Russia. And I mean, maybe Mookie could answer this better, but like, why aren't they going after that population? I think they have TV of some sort in Russia, but like, you know, they're... well, they do. We see the Russian announcing team on every pay per view. That's true. That's right. So, so yeah, I guess it's it's about a third of the population of the United States, a little less, a little more than a third, but but yeah, just an interesting point there. And uh... well, UFC has eyes on it, but they also have Russian stars. That's right. You got Volkan out there. You've got ver, ver. <laughs> so ver, ver. Yes. He's one of my favorite uh, MMA stars from Russia. Ver, ver. Um, so anyway, if we've got nothing else to add to that, um, we can move on to, I don't know if we need to get into the, this ad rate thing, but uh, we could talk about Jim Cornette talking about NXT's profitability. Sure. Okay. So I'm sure, okay, are the actual numbers in here? Because when I last looked at the notes, it just had the quote. I've got actual numbers here. I've got uh, okay. in, in 2000. So this is what Cornette said. He said in 2016, NXT drew seven million dollars in ticket money. That's true. He also said that NXT had twenty million dollars in expenses. I don't know that to be true. Um, then he said so that was in 2016. Then he said for 2017, NXT sold six million dollars in tickets, so a little bit less. And that that is true. That this is in the annual report. And he said there were $25 million in expenses. And again, I don't know where he's getting this expense number from. I don't know if he's heard this from someone who works with the WWE or some source that he has. Uh, I don't know where he would get that number from. But, but that sounds plausible to me, $25, $20 million a year for the Performance Center, considering all the contracts that they have and all the costs of the, running the Performance Center, all the trainers that they have, all the staff that they have associated with it. I'm sure it's very expensive to run. It's developmental, and yeah, and but I see where Cornette's coming from. Like, hey, we, we run ran OVW, we ran developmental years ago, and they probably had to run it out of profit so that they're, you know, so that OVW was sustainable. Um, but it's you know, it's another corporate thing from WWE. They they justify it as they have this performance center now that they're kicking out all these superstars from eighty percent of our roster or whatever they've they've said you know previously. So many of their superstars are coming from the NXT performance center. They even like. They credit Shinsuke Nakamura as a performance center product, Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens as performance center products as if they were, you know, to, to the common investor or analyst, they don't know any better. But I think to the business world, if nothing else, uh, having the performance center there, having Triple H run NXT, it gives him maybe some legitimate training in taking over for Vince someday, and it gives the presentation that, hey, look, here's evidence, here's a, here's a track record, here's a work record of this guy actually running a brand you know that's sort of independent from wwe it's, it's not on main roster tv it's not on usa network here here's evidence of him running a brand and it had something that we can paint as a success it, it definitely uh achieved you know some traction with hardcore fans so that right. you need to not be so concerned when he takes over for vince someday well i mean and first of all there's nothing wrong with developmental being a loss leader yeah there really isn't um, I would be curious, though, what the balance sheet would look like, though, if you limited the budget to the people who were actually used on shows. Just if you look at it as NXT, the promotion. So you'd be just counting who then? People who are booked on both the touring and Florida shows, basically. 
Just I, I'm curious what that would look like. How many just, just of the this? Talent. I see. Okay. I'd be curious how much of that money is going to the people who are still being trained. Right. So not NXT in the performance center, just NXT. Like, just what are the right. costs associated with running these events? I would think they're profitable. Like, I, I don't think that they're running. Well, I don't know because you are paying certain people like Nakamura six figures, I believe. Um, Granted, he hasn't been on NXT in a year, but but in um, 2016 he was. 2016 he was yes, um, but that was all. You know, he was always going to go to the main roster, even if they needed him for a year in NXT. Uh, but it's also I want to know what the total cost of the of everyone else is. Like I just want to see it broken down and to get an idea of how much is the talent they're actively using, how much is the talent they they don't consider ready. And I think if nothing else, especially these shows that are outside Florida, they're, uh, they they provide relief to the loss leader, right? Like this this is losing money, but it's losing oh those less have money. to be making money, I would think, on an on a show to show basis. Yeah, it's losing money, but it's losing less money than it would otherwise if we were just having them, you know, train in the performance center or just play shows in the, in the Florida loop. Right. I, and I think, in, but as far as like the performance center expense, I think. A justification that that WWE could argue, which they wouldn't and shouldn't argue publicly, is that you know at least we're holding on to this talent and we're keeping this talent for ourselves rather than letting someone else use that talent, which is which sounds pretty monopolistic. But if if self interest is all we're talking about here, it, it serves them in that way. You mean like Chad Lyle getting signed and then basically not doing anything for a year? Who? Uh, Gunner from TNA. Oh, okay, they they had him. When when did they have him signed? He's been there for close to a year. He's still there now. now? Oh, I didn't know. He just he just started with a new gimmick on uh, the Florida shows. Okay. Yeah, it's who, who, oh, it's who is it? It's him, Wesley Blake. Um. Oh, what's his fa- what's his name? One of those guys who's been there forever in a zillion gimmicks. And why am I forgetting her name? All of a sudden, sudden military pinup. That's actually on TV sometimes. Lacey Evans. Thank you. Uh, they're doing like some new redneck stable, trying out that gimmick on the oh, Florida. I, I have seen a picture of that. That sounds familiar. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that like to go to what you were saying though. He was like basically not on shows. I mean, he would re- I think occasionally wrestle, but this is someone who's experienced and just not doing anything for like a year. Um, he's not the only one who's been in that spot. Yeah. But. You know, also, I think we should to give some context to what Cornette was saying. Pre-performance center, developmental was always an outside company getting a like a contracting gig and being paid a flat fee each year. Yeah, they had to take care of their own business, mm-hmm. which is why you know in OVW, for example, Cornette always tried to push the you know the OVW trained guys, the, you know the best ones, even if they didn't have developmental contracts at the time. Sometimes they did. You know, Doug Bash from Trailer Park Trash, Flash Flanagan, uh, Rob Conway, and like uh, Nick Damager. Yeah, and Dinsmore. I knew I was forgetting someone. Because I, I remember like, in like 2003 when I was getting into wrestling, like when I was like 18, a lot of my friends who were wrestlers were 18. They were, the, that was like the dream is like, oh, yeah, we're going to move to Louisville eventually because that was. And try to get signed. Yeah. 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 Which some people did and it worked for them and some it didn't. Yeah. Uh, it was just a weird thing because it's like, you know, you'd show I, – I believe some of those guys would show up and be, have to start in the beginner class because – which was the, literally just the wrestling school class because the advanced classes were for the contract talent. Yeah. 
but it's I mean it's just a different thing. And what what Cornette was saying a lot of it was, could you imagine what I could have done with twenty million dollars? Right. I, I understand where he's coming from there. Yeah, he's like right. I don't think he was even criticizing the idea of it being a loss leader either. I think he was just like kind of at a loss for just what a difference it would have made for when he was basically doing the same thing. Right. Like give, give me 10 to $15 million to, you know, do whatever with. Um, right. And, and even, yeah, even just having more trainers than just, I mean, you know, who was it? You know, Rip Rogers, guys to WWE would send down like Lance Storm, Danny, Davis. you know, Danny Davis, Dinsmore, like that's about it, you know. You know who 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 are your performance center full time coaching staff now? Matt Bloom, Norman Smiley. Uh, is Sarah Damata still a coach, or is she now a, pretty much a full time agent? I think they moved her to an agent. Um. Um. So what's her face? Uh, Dark Angel, Sarah Stock. Yep. Steve Carino. Yes. Uh, Johnny Saint did a stint there. He was yes. He was a full time coach for like six months, right? So, something like that. Something like that. Yeah, um, and there are always other people doing, like, long-term stays. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm forgetting others. Though. Oh, Shawn Michaels, of course. Terry Taylor. Mm-hmm. Billy Gunn before he got fired for uh, testing positive on a drug test for in a, uh, powerlifting. Yes, in a uh, middle-aged, like, seniors weightlifting yeah. contest. Uh, I'm forgetting people, though. But I mean, there are always people coming in and out. There are always the guest coaches mm-hmm. that they're able to fly and do all this different stuff. It's, it's just a different system. Um, you know, the big criticism is always though that there's not enough one-to-one attention because of all the big, all the rings and all the people they have signed. Um, and all those indie guys coming in and, you know, taking everybody's spots or whatever, whatever Velveteen Dream was talking about the other day. Right. Although, I mean, a lot of those guys are not actually doing the performance center day-to-day stuff. They're in the Terry Taylor, Shawn Michaels advanced group who are preparing more for main roster type stuff. So it, I, I'd be I'd be curious for the more detailed breakdown, but we know we're never going to get it. Yes. And you have any guess like where he's getting this expense number from? Because like I don't know, I, I don't. I read the annual reports. Do they have anything in the annual reports other than ticket sales for NXT? No, not not in explicit terms like that. There's like so if you've ever read an annual report, they kind of go section by section or business segment by segment, and. They'll do a table at, where they'll show like this year and last year, and here's some some metrics for the last two years. And then below that, they'll give some detail. And uh, I know Mookie believes that they got their wrists slapped by the SEC. Maybe the SEC said said something to them about this, so they've started to to separate out NXT attendance and and some NXT live event money. So anyway, below the the table, they'll have some detail, like a little paragraph, and we'll say, okay, NXT had this many paid attendees at this average ticket price. So. You just do the math, and you figure, okay, they made uh, $3.4 million in 2015 on NXT ticket sales, $7 million in 2016, $6 million in 2017. So that's how we know that. I don't know how Jim Cornette knows or thinks that there's $20 million, $25 million in expenses. Yet, on the other hand, that sounds plausible. It sounds plausible, but, yeah, I'm curious where he's getting that specific number from. Although, didn't he say on the show that he was getting it from the financial reports? I, I don't see that, but and I don't see that in the reports. I'd have to go back to what he said because I thought he said something like that. But I was thinking kind of the same thing too. Like, wait, I don't, I don't think that says that in the reports. So, I'm, I'm not sure what the deal is there. Um. Okay. Wait. Uh. 
let's see. Oh, and it, okay, I'm trying to see what's in the the 2016 report is what I found quickest. And it's I mean it just refers to NXT's like contribution right to the live event sales. Um and then like other metrics like merchandise and stuff that excluded NXT because of smaller venues. Uh Yeah, and it, it broke down the whole total attendance and the, and the average ticket price and yeah. yeah, I'm not seeing where he would have gotten this. And, and also when we talk about what's the value of NXT and uh, how it's a loss leader, I think we should remember, too, that NXT is providing content for the network that has yes. caught on with hardcore fans. Uh, so it's there's definitely a value that you could appraise. I don't, I don't know. We need a lot more information to do it. But there's a value there in, like, they're, they're producing a one-hour weekly show for the network that is keeping people as subscribers to the network. Uh, and they're doing those takeovers, which... WWE at least always touts that those are one of the most viewed pieces of content on the network besides pay-per-views is those NXT takeovers and the NXT TV does well as well. So consider that. So that's NXT unless you have anything else to add. No, that's all I have to say about NXT. We'll, I think we'll move on to new Japan did some shows in Australia this past week. They ran four shows in Australia in Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, and Perth. And we've got a variety of reports about what the attendance was. Uh, what, what seems certain, though, is that Melbourne and, and Sydney were the biggest shows, drawing uh, around 3,000 people each. Uh, Perth and Adelaide drawing uh, maybe over 1,000. We've got the, the Observer came out uh, on Wednesday night, Thursday morning, and said Adelaide drew 1,200. Voices of Wrestling flagship uh, came on and said that Adelaide actually drew less than 1,000. Uh, the Observer said Melbourne drew 3,200, and it was a sellout. Uh, and the Voice of Wrestling flagship basically confirms that, saying more than 3,000, also a sellout. Uh, Sydney, the Observer says 3,400, and a near sellout. And uh, VOW says about 600 less, 2,800, 300 short of a sellout. Perth, the Observer said, was 1,200. Uh, Voice of Wrestling said 1,800, and about 80% full. Um, I talked to somebody who, who was there, and uh, and they said maybe uh, maybe closer to the lower one there. And it was I, I've heard they, they were running a lot of big venues here, and you know a lot of stuff tarped off, and that may have uh, affected the atmosphere of these shows. But uh, it looks like they did pretty well. There was talk in the Observer about uh, New Japan possibly going back to Sydney and Melbourne, and uh, as well as it, it debuting on the Gold Coast, which I understand is uh, an area of, of Australia near Brisbane on the, I think it would be the eastern coast of Australia. So VOW directly deny any of that's going to happen, though. So I don't know uh, what the Observer is doing or where Voice of Wrestling is getting their information from, but some, click, some conflicting reports there. Uh, Tor did all right, though. And, and again, the reason why we're going over all these attendance numbers is because usually New Japan will publish the paid attendance for each of their shows on their official website in the results section. But for whatever reason, they didn't post any results for any of these shows, and so therefore we didn't get any attendance numbers. So, so I don't know, Bix, any, any thoughts on uh, this Australia show or New Japan's global strategy? I think it's good for them to try to put down more roots in Australia. I mean, they've been doing that with talent for a while and occasionally sending wrestlers over for indie tours, but it makes sense, and I think it, it needs to be somewhere for them to really just... Whether it's keeping an eye on the indie scene, running occasional shows, whatever, they need to put down roots there because it's somewhere they can have as like a f international touring market 
that is not an onerous trip. You know what I mean? If in terms of like where they can travel to that's not just in Asia and isn't, you know, it's it, Australia is the closest. It's a shorter flight, maybe travels a little bit cheaper. Um, English speaking country. Where exactly. They're, they're doing English speaking commentary more now. So, yeah. And we know they've, they've got the, a lot of wrestlers from New Zealand, Bad Luck Fale, Jay White. Uh, Hanare is is from New Zealand. As well, uh, Hanare, right? I think is, I thought Hanare, I thought was Australian. Maybe he's Australian, but yeah, they've, but they've there's got, yeah, there's more of a push in that. I mean, you know, Noah had Noah was really who recruited uh now TM sixty one the NTT, yeah. then part of TMDK. Um, it it you know it seems like their indie scene is growing, but there's not a ton of attention on it, so that that gives them kind of like untouched talent. Uh, I think they need to kind of keep chipping away at this. Um, I'm kind of curious what kind of data they get off of these shows in terms of attendance. Like, I would think if they can sustain it, or at least have hints they can, just, they can sustain it, they should go there more than they go to the U.S. Yeah. Whether it's a full tour or a one-off. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm a little curious about, like, who was really in charge of these shows. Like, I've seen pictures of, of these shows, and you don't see, like, the authentic New Japan ring like we did in, in Long Beach. Where, like, what I'm talking about is, like, the... Uh, it wasn't. It didn't look like a New Japan ring. Like it wasn't the uh, the white corner posts. It was like a more traditional American style ring with turnbuckle pads. Hmm. So that that kind of makes me wonder. Well, maybe maybe W or maybe maybe New Japan was more hands off with this show, and uh, maybe it was less of an official show. Maybe these were. I don't know if they were bot shows, but maybe there was someone else kind of running these for them. This is just. I'm just asking. I don't know this, um, but and maybe that sort of explains why these shows haven't haven't been you know, reported on their official website in, in the results section. So, I don't know. Yeah. Um, New Japan will be coming to L.A. in the end of March. I believe it's March 25th. They're co- going to Long Beach again. And uh, just one show, and a lot of people were very critical of New Japan, only running one show. They're so hot right now. How could they only run one show? Um, and I'm a little sympathetic to the argument that, well, if they announced like a – six or seven date tour throughout the United States and they sold out the first three nights and then the last four nights were hit and miss. Maybe that would take their buzz down a bit. I, I know they're being very slow and conservative here, but I'm, I'm okay with, with what they're doing now. I do think they should within the next couple of years. Yeah. They should do, they should do an entire tour in, in the U S. Yeah. yeah. LA and Chicago, New York. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, some other places, obviously probably Philly, I wonder if that – when was it? 2010 when they did that Northeast tour when they really had no following in the U.S.? I wonder how much that has made them more conservative. Yeah, that's true. Because that – and that was kind of a disaster. And I remember at the time it was like – that was when they were starting to pick up a little more steam in Europe. Mm-hmm. It, you know, where they had really had picked up none yet in the U.S. and I couldn't figure out why – they were doing this in the States because I believe it was New York city, New Jersey and Philadelphia. And it didn't really draw. And, you know, it also had disastrous effects on Jersey all pro wrestling, which was basically the local promoter. Like, you know, for people who aren't familiar with, you know, the Northeast indie scene since then, you know, Jersey all pro kind of has ceased to exist being like a regular running promotion other than, you know, running, yeah, you know, they were running like once a year. They'd run the anniversary shows. Now they're running twice a year. 
you know, before then they were one of the biggest, you know, uh, you know, and most prolific indie promotions in the area. Did did anybody kind of take over in their place? Is that like is like is a Russell Pro filled that void at all? I mean, in that part of Jersey, I would say yeah, it's Russell Pro because they run the same venue. And you know, they draw well. Like I, you know, I, I presume you saw the pictures of their last show, the one where they had uh, Emma in the headlining, uh, and they basically, yeah, no, they I packed heard about the it. Rawway Rec Center. Yeah, they they did tremendously well. So you know, and they always draw well anyway. But they they've kind of filled that void. I mean, really, you know, they're a direct replacement for uh, PWS, which was running the same venue. Right. So really, I guess I, you would say that it was kind of PWS picking up, and then now WrestlePro. Mm-hmm. Kind of filled that void, but not exactly. It, you know, it's not the same type of promotion. They have a different business model. You know, they it's a lot of fresh WWE names and stuff, right? Well, they kind of famously, and it's like it's something you don't hear about that much from other promotions, but it is kind of clever. And I don't know how much it's done in Russell Pro compared to how it was done in uh, PWS. The vendors would bring in people for autographs, and they'd always have a mini convention before the show, and then they'd have people on the show where their bookings were basically funded by the vendors. Yeah, I've, I've is, seen a lot of that in the indies. But they, they were the most they, – they did it the most. They did it with more people per show than it, close to anyone else was my understanding. Like you'd see it other places, but it was their business model basically was to do that. And you know, it did well, and then you know, there was whatever split internally at PWS and now yeah, WrestlePro is Russell doing quite well. Yeah. Uh, just to go back to New Japan, though, like I, I think they've – I, I kind of wonder sometimes because you know, the way we talk about WWE and like – I think I think WWE anyway has taken a while to have a modern approach, at least a more modern approach to to wrestling. I think that's mostly through Paul Levesque and the changes we've seen in just what we were talking about in NXT and, and uh, the Performance Center. So, and so relating to New Japan, I think you kind of wonder well, how how well does New Japan management understand the um, you know the Western wrestling fan? And I, I, when you look at like Billy Gunn being booked against Roshi Tanahashi, that raises a lot of a lot of question marks. And uh, I don't know if they've learned, but I would say Rey Mysterio, who's, get, who's scheduled to face Jushin Thunder Liger on the next Long Beach show, I, that hints to me that, well, maybe they've, they're starting to get it. Yeah. In fairness, they were already using Billy Gunn. It's not like they brought him in fresh as their – Right. He, he was in the tag tournament. As their American attraction. Yeah. 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 He had been in the tag tournament the, the prior November before he wrestled for New Japan in July in, in Long Beach. Yes. Yeah, so that it's not like it was completely out of nowhere. It was yeah, it was a terrible idea, especially since Billy Gunn is ten feet tall. Yeah, but and he's like how he's yeah. probably in his late forties, not really ready to uh, do a Tanahashi level match. No, although I do think it went better than anyone kind of expected, even if it wasn't an especially good match. Yeah, yeah it was fine. It just wasn't. Uh, it's it's not the type of product that you expect to be paying for when when you're buying New Japan. Billy Gunn's 54 years old. Wow. So he's like 53 at least then. He was 50, he was 53 uh, for uh, the Long Beach weekend. Wow. Yes. F- 53-year-old fame master. <laughs> so. uh, maybe we should jump to Ring of Honor from there. I think that's a good way to go from New Japan. Ring of Honor. Yes. Supercard of Honor, which is their annual WrestleMania weekend event. Uh, of course, this is going to be in New Orleans, Saturday, April 7th, and they've already got a pre-sale. At least as of Wednesday, according to our friend Lavi Margolin, they've got a pre-sale of 4,600 tickets, which will break any of their previous attendance records by a wide margin. Um, 
the, the others that come close are Supercar of Honor last year in uh, the Orlando area, which drew about 3,500. And then we've got Global Wars in this past October in Chicago, about 2,500. Field of Honor in 2015 in Brooklyn, about 2,000. So almost doubling that number. Uh, well, and more than doubling that number. But yeah, that this is a the only match I think that we've got for this one is Cody versus Kenny Omega, right? But uh, they've advertised all in Castle, Young Bucks, Kotobushi, Hiroshi Tanahashi. So yeah, yeah, and you know, and it is WrestleMania weekend too, of course. So that's worth noting. Um, just looking at these for a second. Obviously, Supercard of Honor last year was WrestleMania weekend, and that was <clears throat> excuse me, headlined by the Hardys Young Bucks la- uh, ladder match. Global Wars in Chicago was the hyped Kenny Omega appearance, I believe. And then Field of Honor in Brooklyn and in 2015, I think, was Okada and uh, Roderick Strong? Yes, it was. Yep. Okay. And I guess this also means then that in spite of what people think, the Hammerstein Ballroom does not hold 2,000 people for wrestling. Yeah, if you, if you click on the doc, I'm, I'm linking to the data that uh, Lavi linked to in, in one of his articles on Ring of Honor attendance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've got it sorted by biggest attendance to lowest attendance so yeah and he's got he's got a note in here saying a full house in later years was 1800 and the actual number was likely 18, 1800 i'm not sure what that means but I, the, the the gist of it is there's some earlier reports about attendances from the hammerstein ballroom where they were reported at like 2500 but then later on it, it looks like maybe we don't really know what the capacity of hammerstein ballroom really was or or at least when you uh consider the setup so again, yeah have you been to shows in hammerstein ballroom Yes, not as many as I would have liked to because I'm honestly not. I don't think it's the, a great place to watch a show. Yeah. Just because every thing is kind of stacked there? on top of each other. No, Kabasi Joe was down the block at the uh, New Yorker Hotel Ballroom. Okay, that is the. I don't think it is anymore, but at the time, that was the hotel owned by uh, Reverend Sun Young Moon. Yes, that was the. That was, I think, the the last scheduled ROH show there. Then they moved to the infamous death trap known as Basketball City uh, on Chelsea Pier. And then after a couple shows, I think they did – I think it was Joe Kenta Danielson was back at the New Yorker. And then they moved to the Grand Ballroom upstairs at the Manhattan Center. Uh, but, yeah, that, no, that was a fun little place to watch wrestling. And that was a great atmosphere for that, uh, for that match, obviously. So, so what do you account the the big difference? Forty six hundred compared to last year, thirty five hundred actually there. I mean, I, what what is this number really going to get to when, once the day of the show comes? Probably over five thousand, maybe well above that. Uh, oh, I think they're going to do big walk up business. Yeah, and I'm not sure. I think they're going to do about as big walk up as you can do in 2018 wrestling. Yeah, I don't know what the capacity is of that building. Do you know offhand? Oh wait, here you here you go. Um, it, says, it says right in the tweet from Lavi. Set of capacity at this time is between. Uh, 5,576 and 5,787. So, yeah, high 5,000s. I think that's what they're setting it up for, though. I think it can hold more. Okay. So maybe they will change the configuration if demand. Yeah, I, I would think so. Like, okay, so pulling it up on Wikipedia, it is an 8,933-seat multipurpose arena. Okay. It's pretty close so, to Yes, I mean, they can... Oh, yeah, I see where you're going with that. Mm-hmm. Are you all in? Are you? I'll see. Um, I, I, you know, I gotta think this is in large part Kenny Omega. I think, but I think it's also WrestleMania weekend. I think it's a confluence of all this. Mm-hmm. 
I think every year WrestleMania weekend becomes a bigger and bigger deal. Yes, absolutely. And for ROH, go ahead. But I think more than that, I think Kenny Omega's turned into like a a pretty hot star for somebody who's never been on WWE main roster TV. And this, and Cody's done really well for himself on the Indies. And this story they're telling about the Bullet Club is, is interesting to a lot of people. Well, yeah, this is the biggest storyline match you can have right now outside of WWE. Yeah. So I think the, I think the specific match should not be discounted either. They are getting a major New Japan storyline match that has not happened in New Japan yet for their major Ring of Honor show. Right. Which, which is, I guess you know, like never happened in the U.S. There's never been like a really important New Japan match in the U.S. No, I don't think so. You know, other than you know, like junior title changes and stuff in the early '80s, stuff like that. But other than that, no. This is. This is different, and even you know, with the ROH New Japan relationship, as much as it's helped Ring of Honor, they still haven't given them anything like this before. Yeah, I don't know what the closest comparison would be. The I don't think there is one because of the way they're you know kind of amplifying the Western stars now for the U.S. push. But it I mean, this it's Omega, it's the whole feud, it's WrestleMania weekend, it's that this WrestleMania weekend appears to have the most momentum for non-WWE events ever. I, th- I think it's all of that. I think it's also... I think it's getting a little bit of residual polish from the all-in hype. That this is all kind of the dry run. Well, I, I think like the, the hype or the traction that the all-in phenomenon or the event uh, is, is getting is sort of thanks to just the groundswell of, of whatever is going on in, in wrestling fandom where people are just get, being more and more able to get into and contribute economically to non-WD products that, you know, they're, that, that's a thing that's happening underneath and that's benefiting both the all-in show that's supposed to happen in September and this Ring of Honor WrestleMania weekend show. Right, and this is the biggest non-WWE show of the weekend. So again, like, I, I would not be surprised if they just end up setting up for full capacity, you know, minus the set and stuff. They should, yeah. Especially because, like, you know, there will be people in town, I think, who will just be like, oh, they're, oh, it's Kenny Omega. Oh, and there's still tickets. Like, yeah. it, if they – I really would not be that shocked if they can put 8,000 people in there because I, I really do think there will be a huge walk-up demand once people are in New Orleans and realize, oh, I can't go to NXT. Oh, but I can go to this. Yeah. Although, actually, are they the, are they the Friday or the Saturday, ROH? They're Saturday. Okay. Oh, wait, I see it in front of me. Yes, so they're opposite NXT. Yeah. You know, it would be a, a good idea. Somebody should do a feature article on the uh, the development of all these non-WE shows uh, throughout the history of WrestleMania weekends. But uh, Yes, that is a good idea for someone to do. Definitely some, definitely someone on this call. Someone should do that. We'll have to uh, assign it to someone. A couple more things. Ed Nordholm uh, alleges that well, PW Insider came up with a report saying that uh, you know some talent is being paid late again by Impact Wrestling, which has been a uh, a common problem throughout at least recent years. Uh, talent complaining that they haven't gotten their paychecks yet. So, uh, Executive Vice President Ed Nordholm issued a statement to PW Insider, I believe, saying you know talent is not being paid late, uh, and he explained that they they have a different payment schedule than the previous management so they're not just paying people after each episode airs they're paying people uh on the month after the, the service is actually rendered so if you appear at a t- tv saving for impact the next month they should be paying you however uh because the offices are now in canada in ontario and not in uh, nashville 
apparently there's some delay with the mail being sent from Canada to, you know, wherever the, the impact talent lives, probably mostly in the U.S. So apparently there's been some delay there. That's, that's Ed Nordholm's side of the story, and they are working on a process to streamline the payroll processing so this doesn't happen anymore. So, um, It sounds like, at least reading between the lines, between the report and what Nordholm said, my vibe is that nobody's really lying, but Nordholm's not entirely telling the truth. It, I, the, the way I'm reading this is that, yes, some of it is that um, they're paying in a way that's different from how wrestlers are normally expect to be pay, paid, even in the whatever the best case scenario during the Dixie Carter era was. But it seems like some of this is BS. Like, okay, come on. It, uh, mailing checks from Canada when everyone lives in the U.S. is not the most efficient way to do business. And it doesn't matter if they're independent contractors. I'm an independent contractor with Gizmodo Media Group. I still get paid by direct deposit. Does Anthem not have a PayPal account? What's going on here? <laughs> oh, oh, are we trying to figure out whether or not Anthem is checking friends or fa- friends and family? Yeah, but I mean, like, it's 2018. Why are why are they not all on like direct deposit or something? Right. And I mean, look at I mean, look at the money troubles they've had. Though no one would be shocked if they were actually getting laid and paying people. They had to gut the Fight Network, which was the thing that they bought TNA for in the first place to boost the Fight Network. And is this the first time we've heard of uh, payment issues since Anthem has owned the company? I think so. So I guess like the argument would be like, all right, look, Anthem's got more money in the bank; they're not going to bounce checks or whatever. I wouldn't expect them to bounce checks, but I don't think things are going great. Uh, again, like the fight now does not really exist in the way anyone knew it to anymore. And also, like, it makes you wonder their competency, too, now that we see uh, John Pollock and Wei Ting monetizing their shows to the degree they were, right. or the degree they are. I don't, ha- I don't have much confidence in, the, in, the, in these people. Uh, whether or not... Uh, Don Callis and everyone can break through that or has the ability to. I don't know. So, in other Impact news, Impact's going to stream their. Uh, it's it's going to be co-promoted with WrestleCon, the uh, WrestleMania weekend event they're going to do. This will be the first time, I believe, right, that uh, Impact, formerly known as TNA, will do a, a wrestling event on W's WrestleMania weekend. Um, I Is think it's the, the second time, time because okay. they did the Long Island show for the New York New Jersey Mania weekend. So. I think it was – I think that's where they did it, which was a weird location. I did not expect them to do well because they were – I believe they were the furthest out from everything else that weekend because they were at Westbury Music Fair on Long Island when – How much draw? Do you remember? Ooh, I think they sold out or came close. They actually did do well. Um, yeah, it's not a big building, Westbury Music Fair, and I don't think anyone else other than Impact has ever run, run wrestling there. But – they did surprisingly well, but that was also a much better time for the company. That was uh, – so that's 2013, right? So that's before AJ Styles is even gone. Yeah, so that's that's, so, yeah. that's a different t- – you know, I mean that's a different world as far as impact goes. Uh, but now, you know, we've – you know, we'll, I guess we'll get to the, you know, uh, Mania Weekend pre-sales in a minute, but – so this is going to be live stream what for free on Twitch? Yes. So that that, that was kind of why we're bringing this up is that the, they're co-promoting an event with WrestleCon. It's going to be Friday, April sixth, uh, on the Friday there, and uh, it's going to be streamed live on on Twitch. They've done a they did a 
They did some sort of a hardcore death match recently right on Twitch. And uh, they're going to do another event on March 9th before this WrestleMania weekend event. But yeah, they've got uh, just some names advertised for the event so far. Austin Aries, LAX, Matt Seidel, Alberto El Patron, Eli Drake, Moose, Rosemary, Sammy Callahan, Eddie Edwards, Trevor Lee, Caleb Conley, Ali, Taya Valkyrie, and, and your friend Teddy Hart. They, wait, they're using Teddy Hart? That's what it said. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll share with you the link. Okay. Um, do we have the WrestleCon events pre- ticket pre-sales in here or only the WWN in the dock? Only the WWN. Okay. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think this is a good idea for them to do it I, um, just because they're going to look so bad. Like, well, I, do you really expect them to not, like? Other than wild, the Wildcat Wrestling Show, I I don't see them outdrawn just about anyone. No. And we're in a weird place. We're like, well, first of all, Impact Wrestling I think is just such a damaged brand that they can't really do live event ticket sales like a much smaller, much less exposed pro wrestling promotion can. But they can still draw about three hundred thousand viewers in the U.S. on Pop TV. And I think a lot of it is, and I, I might have said this already, I'm sorry if I have, but like, I think a lot of it is, you know, it's asking a lot less of a consumer to sit on their couch and watch something on TV than it is to get up and go someplace and have to sit in a chair and watch a, a wrestling show and, you know, pay a lot of money for food and, and all that. So, I, so it's about, are people passionate about impact? Well, some people are, but there's like as many people passionate about indie promotions. Right, and do you know what shows their opposite? So what what slot are they in, did you say, for Friday, Mania Weekend? Friday at 9. So that's going to put them opposite the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And what's what's the WN stuff we've got here? Uh, okay, so let's see. Friday. Uh, WWN Super Show. So, I mean, they're not opposite a major show on the WWE side, but then also people are probably – that is – Joey Janela's spring break is also Friday night, though. So are like, people necessarily – yeah, so are people necessarily, though, going to want to be downtown and not – like, I would – I'm going to guess if people are going to take in one of the other shows, they're more likely – one of the other indie shows, they're more likely to go to WWN Super Show. How far is the sugar mill from the WN venue? Well, the WMN venue is not even technically in New Orleans. It's out by the airport for some reason. And it is like – like if you Google map, it is like a half hour away. Traffic could be worse. It's not the optimal location. So you probably are going to see – and, you know, this has happened before. But I'm guessing you this year especially, you are going to see a lot of people choosing like this day I go to this set of shows. Day, excuse me. I go to this set of shows yeah. instead of going back and forth. But part of the advertising here for this Impact event, they, they have said that the event will run from 9 to 11 p.m. So they're advertising an ending time. And so maybe they're taking that into account saying, hey, look, if you want to go to Joe Janela's spring break at 11.55, you got 55 minutes to get there. Yeah. If you, if, if, we, are, we are setting up the timing of the show around people wanting to go to Joey Janela produce over our show that is promoted on national television with an audience of – a few hundred thousand people every week. Right. Now, I think you get to Joey Janela, obviously, but still, you get where I'm going with this. Right. Yeah. And, and if you want to make a comment about that, too, like, I think Joey Janela is doing something really interesting in that it's, um, you're, 
not a lot of promotions have an identity, and especially if you're going to operate at, at this level of independent wrestling, uh, there's there's plenty of access for me to find great wrestling matches. But what there's not access for me so much is to find stuff that's just, just different or like hits the wrestling mm-hmm. fans in a, in, a di- in a different spot or just gives them a different flavor than what they're used to. So I think that that's something that, that wrestling promotions should be thinking really hard about, especially if you're like, I don't know, an indie promoter who wants to become a, a bigger indie promoter. You can't just put on a, a good wrestling show in, in your, you know, in whatever you idealize as good wrestling. You have to put on something that hits wrestling consumers in a way that they're not being hit already. You got to get yes. them a product that they're not already able to buy somewhere else. Especially in a late night time slot, you know, some people may just wanting to be go over to Bourbon Street or whatever. You know, you need to be different and special, and especially Mania Weekend, where so many shows are using the same talent too, even across the different groups. You know, last year was the most insane and congested it's ever been. You know, with so many people working like ten shows in the weekend. Yeah. So, you know, this, this year I don't expect to be quite as bad. But you know, it's not just competing with other shows. You're also competing with people not wanting to be burnt out on wrestling for the weekend. Yeah. So I feel like it's better to not have that bad showing with the dead crowd you know what i mean it's like people forget like especially sometimes like there will be a great like show on the wwn slate like one of the evolve shows it ends up just being forgotten because even though people saw it and enjoyed it, it it was just in kind of a bad time slot yeah a lot of wrestling a lot a lot of people watching a lot of the same shows you know so imagine the, the number of hours uh the given person is going to have watched wrestling that weekend. Yeah. I mean, if I end up going and I'm kind of trying to figure it out right now, yeah, you're going to go. I kind of want to, it's mainly for spring break. Although I want to do spring break and Matt Riddle's blood sport. Matt Riddle's blood sport does not have the best time slot. Matt Riddle's blood sport is Thursday afternoon at three, right? which is for a show that that's a appe- That's that appealing. Uh, that doesn't feel like a great idea. That I mean, I seems, guess the, that, that seems like one of those shows that should have like one of these midnight slots, like um, yeah, well, also, Big Battle does and Spring Break does. Like, I would not be surprised to see that show be just tons of people rolling their suitcases in straight from the airport. Yeah, like that feels like almost kind of like the only way for people to go there because, like, come on, who's really going to be showing up early Thursday morning or Wednesday? Right, I, especially a show like Bloodsport. They're, they're supposed to like take the ropes down and stuff too. I feel like this is a show that I should be watching. At like three o'clock in the morning in an alley somewhere, you know, not three in the afternoon. Well, who is who is doing Thursday at midnight? Is that that's beyond? Yeah, right. Which, you know, they're gonna have a good show, but I kind of well. So let's see. Okay, so there is right. There's a okay. Here's your Thursday lineup at WWN: Matt Riddle's Bloodsport at three p.m., Evolve at eight p.m. Uh beyond at 11.55. And then WrestleCon that night has Wildcat Sports, which is uh, Luke Hawks, who's the local promoter for, if not just the WrestleCon stuff, I believe, if it's like last time, is the local promoter for li- literally everything. Uh, he That's his local promotion at 6. WrestleCon Super Show at 9.30. And then the Crash Friday at noon. Oh yeah, and then Progress is also Friday at noon at WWN. So that's the thing too is that you have these midnight shows and these noon shows. Yeah, 
I might go. I've got a, t- a plane ticket. I've made no other travel or wrestling ticket show plans, so I'm still debating. Probably going to wait till the last minute to decide. But uh, Have you been to New Orleans before, Vix? No. No? I was just there a f- few months ago, and I walked through Bourbon Street. And uh, it's a uh, it's a different place, yeah. It's like a it's just a street. There's no cars. It's just people pouring on into the, at night, and just people pouring out into the street. You know, un, under various degrees of influence. And uh, yeah, you can just walk into uh, any bar, walk out with a drink in your hand. It's a it's a wild time. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. You know, if I end up going, I'm kind of curious to see what that scene is like because you heard these stories coming out of the last New Orleans mania, where like WWE talent and the name indie talent and the fans were just all kind of like just casually socializing with each other along Bourbon Street. Really? Yeah. So that seems like a much different atmosphere from the usual Mania weekend. So I'm kind of curious to see how that works out this year. How many Mania weekends have you been to? I was in Orlando last year and that's, I think that's it. That's my first and only. I only did the one that was here because at the time I did not want to try to spend on the travel. But but we're big, successful, uh, well-paid wrestling media writers now. So, well, I mean, now that now that I have a new editor in chief finally, and there's no like more freeze on that, I should probably try to see if I can get it expensed. <laughs> That's right. I just gotta scroll up. So Barons came out with an article this past week where they're referencing a lot of stuff from Guggenheim, which Guggenheim is is a financial ant analysis firm uh where guggenheim is speculating that the tv rights deal for wb will be even higher than others are speculating a lot of people are speculating 1.7x in terms of what's their increase going to be for the u.s tv rights fees and guggenheim's a little more optimistic 2x and it looks like their justification is they're like hey look wb raw and smackdown have got you know way lower rights fees per regular season viewer hour compared to other sports such as the NBA, NFL, MLB, UFC, NHL. So they're speculating that, okay, look, well, Raw and SmackDown get about 20 cents, 19 cents per hour. Uh, and all these other uh, sports organizations get a dollar, two dollars, three dollars. So why can't WWE close that gap just a little bit? Mookie has pointed out on Twitter that they're not appreciating enough that the reason why WWE gets lower rights fees per hour is because WWE has much lower ad rates, so it's a lot harder to sell the the commercials and the advertisements on Raw and SmackDown uh, than it is for other sports. So. Now, this does not have outright any concrete ad rates here listed, though. It's just right. It's just comparing. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, so right. I was putting, putting together the notes. I, I looked through J.P. Morgan's analysis because I thought they had a graph in there about ad rate ad rates, but I didn't see it because they they came out a few months ago with a, a very thorough. Analysis of W's business when they were projecting, uh, they upgraded their uh, their projection for you know, W stock price, and they came out with this big report. I thought there was something in there, but there isn't. They uh, they made some some just similar uh, reports about what they think the 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 rights fees per hour are that are very similar to what Guggenheim says. But yeah, uh, I don't think that ever changes. The, it's always going to be a limiting factor with them, though. So. I, I mean, what do you think? Do you think at this point it would take anything to change? Uh, I mean, I other than like actual substantive changes in the viewership and then the demographic studies and stuff to make the ad rates higher. Yeah. Well, so so far they've I think they've made some progress in the last couple of years with this campaign that NBC Universal is helping them do. We see like the uh, you can find it on YouTube if you probably just Google or or YouTube search uh, the hero in all of us WWE. 
they're doing a lot of promotion around like explaining to people that, and this goes to the the hero's journey, the monomyth that we hear George Barrios talk about in that, like, Hey, look, wrestling is just like any other form of entertainment and that it it involves, you know, a hero and a villain. And when people walk to the ring, they know exactly what's going to happen. And that's why WWE transcends all these cultures and countries. Um, and so they've, they've done a campaign and they've gotten more blue chip sponsors as they call them. And we've seen, you know, like real evidence of that. Yeah. I think it was, Jared's that had that had a deal with them. They were doing all that stuff like with the proposals. Oh, that um, was uh, K Jewelers. Was that K Jewelers? And I know that like Royal Rumble not that many years ago was sponsored by like some tax company, right? Some, somebody to help you do your taxes. I don't know if that's a, but was it H and R Block? Something like that. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's some progress being made there. I, I believe, of course, W's going to tell you that there is, and I and I think there's truth to it. Um, but I think what they what they could really do to improve their perception and ultimately their ad rates is just first of all for one thing do do fewer things that insult the intelligence of your wrestling fans because like i think the you know it's like the the wrestling whatever you assume about your wrestling fans is, is what you're going to get if you if you and i think there's a, a again like a legacy within pro wrestling creatively and the, the decision makers of like you know we don't need to tell these people the truth or we don't really expect them to remember what's happening here. And I think if you booked a more intelligent product, maybe you would get a more intelligent customer and maybe you would get a customer who has more spending money and who has, I don't know, um, the tastes of things that get a higher ad rate. Yeah. And then, you know, if they do end up moving to Fox network that casts some wider net, you know, maybe, you know, and then also, if Rousey expands the female audience and brings in different demographics there, I, I do think there is stuff that could change enough that it could really bring this up. I don't know. Uh, but even then, you know, it's not even with, you know, like the stuff that goes deeper, deeper in the Nielsen ratings, showing stuff that's not flattering for the WWE audience in terms of education and income and stuff. I got to think, though, that there are other shows that are not necessarily as closely examined that maybe fall closer to that, that still aren't getting as bad ad rates for their audience as WWE is. Right. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with, I, I understand, like, I think pro wrestling, like, is to an extent, yes, there's, like, always going to be a violent aspect to it, I guess, but it doesn't need to be as seedy as it's it's been presented as no. in the last uh, at least 20 years. I, I think there's still stuff, like, stuff that's still insulting to the intelligence that goes back well further than the attitude era stuff but yeah i think there's a ton of progress to be made and a lot of assumptions that continue to be made about who wrestling fans are what they'll understand uh that's preventing w from making progress real economic progress not just like aesthetic progress or political progress but like stuff that could really benefit their business that they they have a very you know they're set in their ways about what they think the wrestling audience is and many people who also make decisions in wrestling, maybe who are not affiliated with WWE, they, they learn from their influence and from, from their power so that, you know, ultimately wrestling just kind of stays the way that WWE makes it. Yeah. Although in a weird way, I'd be curious to find, I know the last reports we've heard had UFC ad rates at, what was it? It was something like two and a half times as much per viewer as WWE was getting. Probably. Uh, it was something in that range. You watch UFC events, though, 
the ads on WWE shows honestly come off as higher rent. Because on UFC shows, you get a lot of this, like, you know, kind of like cable news, kind of like catheters and hearing aids <laughs> type ads. And, like, you know, and, and a lot more, you know, like boner pills and stuff. Yeah. So, it, like, you watch the two shows, you would get the you would get the idea that WWE gets higher ad rates than UFC. Absolutely. Which, really? But, yeah, I mean, like, it's it's but. Come something that's been more and more noticeable too, and been talked about more and more in MMA media circles lately. That you, you see like eugenics commercials and hearing aids and stuff all over UFC when you don't see that type of stuff on WWE. And it really it's it's this weird contrast, like so that like WWE is getting clearly like the the better looking advertisers, <laughs> but they. they they're not paying as much, so it's it's like they recognize that WWE is a bargain. So I I almost wonder is it like it's not is it do they feel that UFC is overpriced even if some of them are willing to pay, or do they feel like there's a a cost to being associated with WWE that there's not with UFC? But it's but it, like I said, some of it's perception. Like yeah, like you UFC will get good partner sponsors. You know, what I mean, like. Logos on the mat, doing a promo introduced by a fighter during a pay per view, that type of thing. They'll get movies, they'll get games. You know, they'll they'll get Harley. You know, they have the Harley. The Harley Davidson thing might actually be dead finally, but they have the Harley Davidson partnership for years and years. That always was good. Commercials though on the shows are really low rent. Where WWE, that only happens like when they during when they would go back to Saturday nights main event, and you would be like. These are not the ads you usually see on network TV. So I, I'm curious what exactly the reason is, though, that WWE is getting the better looking ads, even if they're not paying as much. Like, why aren't you seeing as many of these video game and movie ads on UFC? Even if, why, even though the demographics seeing, these days are similar. Have you seen the World Wildlife uh, commercials? World Wildlife Fund, WWF commercials? Yeah, on I think Raw? so. Yeah. That, that, the. There were like consecutive weeks where I saw that, and uh, I think there were, you know, people were commenting on that. That my God, the uh, the company that they had the uh, the initial dispute over with is advertising on Raw itself. So. Yeah, but that is like a it se- would seem to be higher end than what Bud Light. I remember back in the day, Zions was like an endless sponsor for UFC. Well, the Zions thing was so weird too, because like Zions went out was going out of business, and then UFC prop them up and sponsoring themselves too <laughs> that was always very strange i can never figure out exactly why they kept doing that like i guess it was they were owed money but then why are you going to keep propping them up to owe yourself money it was weird so anything else to say on that uh i guess that's it you know what something i will say in, ter- in terms of plugs um, I mean, by the time this comes out, I guess it's last week's between the sheets because the new one is going to be the show covering 1991. Mm-hmm. Oh no, wait, what am I talking about? No, this is the show that's going up this week. I'm sorry, I always get jumbled with that. Uh, the show that is going to be up, you know, around the same time as this show goes up, uh, is a 1991 show with me and Chris Elner, and we're going over in a week that included a. It was a survey coming out. I forget by who. It actually been conducted in 89, but it wasn't released till 91 for some reason, about most loved and most hated sports and kind of where wrestling, although the survey had it as WWF wrestling or something like that in it. 
And it was something like WWF was like in the 30s out of 115 or something for most loved. But it was like number five most hated. So we go into a lot of that and that kind of ties into all this. So I think WrestleNomics, uh, I was going to say users, WrestleNomics listeners will definitely get a kick out of that. Um, WrestleNomics drug users who are addicted. <laughs> yes, they will love addicted it. Addicted to you and Mookie. Uh, yes. They're, they're probably already addicted to Between the Sheets as well. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yes, we hear about that. I mean, you know, last week we had the guy who reached out to say he listened to the WCW segment over immediately after he listened to it for the first time. So, so that's definitely happening. That That's that's a thing. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was very interesting. Other stuff going on that week, too. Like, you know, that era is always interesting to me, especially because you've got the, the three big major newsletters with Observer, Torch, and Matwatch. And yeah, you know, betweenthesheetspod.com for the SoundCloud. Uh, just, you know, find Between the Sheets anywhere that you find podcasts. Otherwise, and, you know, as plugs, that's been, you know, I did the thing about the wrestling journalism, you know, discussion. This week, I wrote about the gauntlet match, which we did not end up talking about. I don't think there's too much to say, really, further that we could have. Um, and, you know, more to we come. Might, we, we might let, let Mookie tackle that later. He did a lot of stats around yeah. uh, his matches for each year on Raw. That seems like his baby. Oh, then, then, of course, there's the whole, is this really one match discussion. Yeah. But I think it's I think it's fair to consider it one match, because I, I think that's... I mean, if you want to just say longest one-on-one match or whatever, longest continuous match... You know, make the distinction. It's not a big deal. Uh, so I, that's up at Deadspin. Uh, is there anything else? I feel like I recorded another podcast this week, but I can't remember. Oh, no, that was a radio appearance. Anyway, yes. I guess that is that as far as plugs for now. And yeah. yeah. Oh, follow me on Twitter at David Bix. So on and so forth. There you go. You can follow my work on WrestlingInc.com. Again, I wrote an article on Ronda Rousey's potential effects to W business. You can find it there. You can follow me on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. And uh, I think that's about all we have to plug. You can follow WrestleNomics on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on all the platforms. And uh, thank you all for listening. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.